Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can subscribe, rate, and review the uh, podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's Apple, Google, Spotify, Good Pods, uh, basically any platform, as well as the Sonic Cinema YouTube channel where you can get not only everything associated with the podcast, but also quick takes that I do for some movies, usually during film festivals, as well as all of the uh, live streams that I've done over the years over on Twitch, and that's at the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can also check us out at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. There you will get... Uh, early access reviews, and right now the big one is Indiana Jones and the Dow of Destiny is over there for Patreon subscribers. You can also get uh, series such as Leaving the Collection and Life Soundtrack, and that is over patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. Today's guest is returning to the show for the first time in a couple of years. I had him on a uh, couple of years ago, we kind of went through our interactions with kind of discussion, the type of discussions that uh, Film Twitter has when it comes to uh, films and the types of discussions as far as discovering films. And uh, he he's somebody whom I, I really have come to appreciate their viewpoints on films, even if I don't always agree with them. <laughs> and it is, uh, and we're we've got a fascinating topic. But before we get to that, I want to re-welcome to the podcast Jason from the Binge Movies Podcast. Jason, how are you doing today? Oh, you said that very diplomatically. Yeah, I'm great. <laughs> Thank you for having me on. Well, seeing as though the last time I was on uh, the microphone with you, you were basically going. I don't know what the hell is going on with this person's taste. I, I and the thing is, it's like so. If if you haven't heard it, I was on a Patreon s- subscriber uh, show of Jason's, um, the Anti Vault for binge movies, and we were talking about Alex Perez's knowing. And yeah. right off the bat, he's like, "I don't know what happened to your taste. Maybe it's the." pandemic but something just snapped <laughs> and i'm like what on earth and it, it's funny because we recorded it like in august of last year and but it didn't come out until earlier this year so i completely forgot that that part happened and i'm trying to think of what exactly was it was there an inciting movie take that made you think about that uh, I, you know what? Not so much uh, that I can remember. There probably was, but it was more so <laughs> the fact that there was a line of movies that I don't want to say that was it was predictable, but I, I had a sense of, you know, you learn personalities a little bit when you're too involved on film Twitter. And, um, and I was like, okay, well, you know, th- this person's going to break this way. That person's going to break that way right. and so forth and so on. And, you know, you were you were kind of uh, more of the even-keeled uh, sort of, I don't know, ki- kind of Ebert-ish, where it's just like, well, I see good in this, and it didn't really work for me, but I see what they were going for, and you might like it, and that, that. And then there was something that I think you really went whole hog for, really loving, 
And I was like, this is insane. And you were one of the only people. <laughs> and I don't remember what it was. And there was like two or three of those in a row. There's also a couple where it was you were like, this is no good. This is not a good movie. This is and I was like, wow. And everybody else was like, ah, it's a pretty good movie. And so you just started to be a little contrarian, I think. Not, not intentional, but just that's the way it happened. And then I have you back on and you're telling me that Knowing is an incredible film. And I'm just going, wow. So I think that was, it was a, it was a cumulative effect. My all that it means all that it means is maybe you used to be predictable and now you're not predictable which is probably better right i i feel like the more movies you end up watching because i i'm somebody who i i try to watch as much as i can i mean whether it's yeah, film festivals yeah. whether it's uh different screeners i don't necessarily stick to just mainstream stuff i try to watch stuff from movies that are going on 4,000 theaters to movies that are just straight VOD or that may never get released because, and they're on their festival run. And, um, you know, I, I think that, I think one of the things that, one of the most important things I, I feel like film critics, film analysts, people who love films and want to talk about films in whatever medium they want to talk about them, I, I think we we not only benefit ourselves by taking in as much yep. as possible, but also benefit our audience. And you 100%. know, I mean, I I think that for me, um, the more I see, and the more things, and and it, some of it is certainly the mood I'm in. I mean, some of it is certainly the mood you're in yeah. at times yeah. when you uh-huh. watch that movie. And I mean. Yep. I, I think you know that was that was that was last summer, and I mean there are certainly, you know, I mean there, if I remember correctly, there are certainly some movies that I saw last summer where it's like, man, what what is going on here? What? And, <laughs> I, I, and it's weird because of the fact that I, I kind of feel there there have certainly been ebbs and flows with me in terms of what is why are movies certain movies not hitting with me the way that I expected them to. And I I think you get to those times where it's like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know. Because this should be, because there are certainly movies that should be up my alley that just fall flat with me completely. Yeah. And I mean, I think we all have those phases. I mean, one of the things, but one of the things I love about, um, binge movies and one of the things that I try to do on the podcast here is I also try to expand my horizons and try to challenge people to watch stuff that maybe is not as easily accessible and maybe and challenging myself to watch stuff that I've never seen before. And or that is it or that isn't in your wheelhouse necessarily. And yeah, that yep. that's why, you know, when you had me on for the Don Bluth episode, it's like, how would you feel you you asked me, it's like, how would you feel about watching these? It's like, oh, that's interesting. I mean, I'm not somebody who and one of the things I liked about that is that I'm not somebody who considers myself a hardcore animation lover. Yeah. I certainly respect the art form, but I also don't have the technical knowledge, as much technical knowledge and technical awareness of how the art form has evolved as other people do. And so, but part of the reasons that I was so interested in 
talking blues with you is because of wanting to expand that knowledge and because of the fact that just based on the films, at least four of the five films that we talked about, um, <laughs> I knew at least all of those titles, but there were still some that I hadn't seen. And so it's yeah. like, okay, this gives me a chance to finally watch those. And then also it gives me a chance to really dive into what was Bluth's voice as a filmmaker. And I, I, I really kind of love that about that experience. Yeah, I am. Um, this is not my show, so I won't go on a rant, but I do have a bit of a soapbox and you just touched on it. And I, I, we're currently experiencing it now and, and we have been for a while in the quote unquote discourse. Um, and for most people, like none of this really matters. Most people, most people who come to a theater to see a movie do not, don't care what people on Twitter say about that movie or yeah. even necessarily rotten tomatoes. Um, they're going because they saw 50 million commercials for it, which is why we get 50 million commercials. And they've seen pretty much what the movie's going to be, which is why trailers show everything. And they think they're going to like it. And and they're willing to spend the 12 to $15 per person to go see that movie. Um, and that's an increasingly smaller population of people who are willing to do that consistently because it's more cost prohibitive and there's other avenues to be able to enjoy the entertainment. But speaking to and about film criticism, and we're in a, we're in a weird period where there used to be sort of film criticism, film analysis, and for lack of a better term, film fanboyism. And those used to be kind of three distinct things. Mm-hmm. And then when the internet came around and places like Ain't It Cool News started to happen, fanboyism and film criticism started to merge because suddenly people outside of established media, people outside of newspapers, radio, and television could have a voice because of the internet. And so the C. Robert Cargill's and, and uh, other people I won't mention who have since been exposed, uh, uh, Cargill has it, but you know, people on Ain't It Cool, Ain't it cool News, they started mixing that in. And mm-hmm. that also happened around the same time that fanboys started to become filmmakers with like Kevin Smith and people like that. So uh, Tarantino, obviously, so the two, two most famous. So the, the, I guess where I'm going with this is now we're 20 plus years down the road from there. And now there's, there's almost no difference yeah. between the video essayist or su- supposed essayist, uh, the supposed fanboy, the influencer and the film critic. There's no difference uh, for a lot of people. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of people who want in an ever shrieking economy around this stuff, because if the studio has to, give access and money or if a uh, someone you know a, a slash film or something like that you know th- their piece of the pie like film websites where you can freelance write for them and get money has shrunk considerably mm-hmm. because you have an infinite supply of people on tiktok and instagram and youtube who will do it for free yeah or who or who will do it for media passes or who will do it if you, they can get Raycon earbud subscription ads, right? So you don't need these websites to pay freelancers. So people who either aspire to that or used to do that are finding it increasingly difficult to make a living talking and writing about films. Yeah. And 
the films they're increasingly having to write and talk about to get any money whatsoever are movies that they perhaps would be their first choice, which in, in, in our present day, it's superhero films. Mm. What's interesting, though, is, and I, I, this is something I bang on Twitter, and I, I, I can't quite articulate it in 160 characters or whatever it is now. <clears throat> if you go back and take Roger Ebert again, right? Most famous American film critic of the 20th century, arguably. And you read just a random review of his, say, from the 70s, of a well-known movie. He'll have incidental comments in there about, as you would, just sort of the context of the modern time in which he was writing. And very frequently, he will complain about melodramas. He'll complain about, well, you know, this movie's good because it's not just another, or this was a fun time at the films, which is we don't have too much, too much fun time at the film and cinemas anymore because it's all about drunk wives and melodrama and bad melodrama and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. When we think of the 70s, we're thinking about Scorsese and Cassavetes and all these sort of people. You know, we're not thinking about the Apple Dumpling Gang. We're not thinking about how many different movies came out that were me- bad melodramas, which was most of them. We're not thinking about how many movies that came out that where it's like, well, Dustin Hoffman is a surly single and he's going to have to adopt these five kids. <laughs> that, was a, that was a trope that doesn't really exist anymore, right? Yeah. And there was a bunch of movies like that where you take a random guy and you put him in a heartwarming family melodrama. That used to be not quite a four quadrant, but movies used to be divided by young and old. There weren't four quadrants. It was mm. adults and kids. And then they tried these middle movies and most of them didn't work. You know, and it's like, well, you, you, you weren't, most people haven't sat through all the Dirty Harry sequels. Most people haven't, most people who long for the 70s to go, we need to go back to adult dramas, weren't watching what was actually coming out in the 70s, for instance, which is Smokey and the Bandit. Yeah. You know, if you want to go back to the day where there was a million car chase movies <laughs> and Smokey and the Bandit is the best one of them. <laughs> and this is where it ties into this, this episode. Do you want to do you want to go back to the days where adult dramas were Swedish erotica films? Yeah, you're not watching, and so what that proves is there's so many people who are talking today who confuse complaining about their wannabe job because most of them aren't making a living doing this. They have day jobs, myself included. Mm-hmm. Um, are complaining about and griping about something that makes their job less enjoyable, and they're confused. Pe- they're confusing the public and they're confusing themselves, first and foremost, with bitching about their job with film criticism and or bitching about their lack of opportunity with film criticism. Yeah. If you were a film critic in 1970-something, writing for the local newspaper and making a sustainable living, you'd be bitching about how many drunk wife melodramas you had to sit through. Mm-hmm. Why, do, why can't we have fun in the movie? And you'd be praising Donner Superman because, and, and Star Wars because finally, fun is back in the cinema. That was the main shebang with those two films. Yeah. With Star Wars and Superman. Is finally, imagination has come back to filmmaking because everything in the, we had gotten so bogged down into melodrama and realism. And this, that's number one. Mm-hmm. You're always going to have something to bitch about. And never confuse a film critic bitching about their job with whether or not the movie they're bitching about is actually good. Yeah. That's number one. Number two, and I'll get off my soapbox, um, is that most of the people who are talking about movies today are not actually watching robustly the, de- the, 
the decade. They, they, they dream of this non-existent utopian period of time when real movies were made. When was that, Brian? <laughs> I mean... Uh, what, when was it? Because uh, most of the movies of the 70s are so garish... Some of them are unwatchable. Was it the revival of British Gothic horror movies, which were basically just American remakes of movies that came out in the 50s? Was it the golden <laughs> era of Hollywood when most of those movies were remakes of silent films? Mm -hmm. Was it silent films when most of those movies were remakes of vaudeville? When was it? Yeah. No, you're... Hollywood has always been full of retreads. <laughs> it's always been full of remakes. And it's always been mostly full of crap because its primary concern is it's a carnival and it's about getting people in the tent. And you know that better than anybody because you work in the tent. Yeah. <laughs> it's about, can we put butts in seats? That's all they care about. Mm -hmm. If Westerns do it, you're going to get a million lousy Westerns. Yeah. You know, there's so many Westerns we don't talk about it anymore. We only talk about about 10 Westerns that have ever been made. And there were hundreds that were made because most of them are crap. The genre we're going to be talking about today doesn't exist anymore does not exist no it really doesn't and it's fascinating for that reason yeah and <laughs> but it drew audiences at least adult audiences and it was a major i mean where we start and where we're going to end up by the time we get to the 1980s the sensibilities of the 60s sexploitation movie which is our subject matter has just worked itself into mainstream film mm-hmm so the point is that you got a lot of people on Twitter who are not, they're not watching. They're not watching. You're not, you're not sitting through all the different Fulci films. You're not sitting through the, the, you know, oh, the great foreign cinema of the 1960s or whatever. You're not sitting there watching the terrible Italian horror films. I might say Fulci's terrible, but a lot of it, Fulci is nonsense. A lot mm -hmm. of it. You're also, you're not watching Fulci's, Western movies. Most people don't even know that he worked in Westerns and comedies for like 30 years before he made a horror movie. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. You're not, you're, you're, you're just, you're, you're same thing with like Sergio Leone, all these great Italian directors. Do you know what they did? They jumped from genre to genre, whatever was popular at the time in Italy, which was usually just a, a ripoff of what was popular elsewhere. Yeah. In, in particular, Hollywood. So they all directed Westerns and cowboy movies. And they all directed um, whatever they were most famous for. They directed four other genres before that. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's like kind of same thing with John Woo. I just did a John Woo episode. John, yeah. Woo, John Woo, before he did his first gun fu movie or, you know, is, uh, you know, his, his, his bloody hero film, uh, that style that he's known for, he's already been working for 20, 25 years. Yeah. He'd done mostly comedies. Most people haven't seen any of those movies. So the, the idea that like, I just, I feel like the level of the, used to, the idea used to be to be articulate in anything you had to be, you know, if you want to talk about literature, you had to be well-read and you had to read broadly and with depth and, and across cultures and across years, because you had to understand the broader context of literature, at least Western literature. And it's, it should be the same thing with film. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're an average moviegoer, no, not necessarily. But if you're going to be analyzing, critiquing, and recommending film, you should be challenging yourself yeah. to, to watch as deeply and as broadly as you possibly can. And that doesn't just mean watching a bunch of Truffaut. It doesn't no. mean just watching a bunch of art house movies. It also means watching a bunch of junk. Because the B side of the A side of Hollywood 
tells you a lot more about the A side than the A side does. Mm-hmm. If you're just watching the standout films throughout film history, you have a very warped sense of what movies even are. Yeah. And that's what I see on film Twitter. That's what I hear on podcasts more than anything is I think most people talk about movies today don't even really know what movies really are. They don't know what the movie business even is. I know I'm sounding like an old man, but that's just where it is. And I've, and I've learned that myself, to your point. It's not, I was, I don't, I'm not innately more intelligent than other people. I learned it by doing the practice of the show that I do, where, you know, when the show first started, I would have longed for the days of the 1990s. Let's go back to when movies were movies, right? And when, anytime anybody says that, they usually mean whatever decade they were 10 years old in. Right. Um, and, I, and I'm like, oh, let's go back to the 90s. And then I watched every top-grossing film of the 1990s over a couple-year period, uh, you know, 100 films. And there's a reason. <laughs> you know how many <laughs> mediocre courtroom dramas I've sit through? <laughs> but get a, get a big butt, get a, get a Tom Cruise, uh, although Few Good Men is good, but you know, you get a Harrison Ford, you get a Tom Cruise, you get a, a handsome leading man and put him in a military mel- melodrama. You put him in a courtroom drama, you know, and even some of the ones that are hit, hit movies, they're not very good. Mm-hmm. You know, we long for the days of the comedies, of the 1990s. Have you watched the comedy, of the night comedies of the 1990s recently? A lot of them are not funny. No, they're not funny anymore. No. If they and were ever so, funny, if yeah. they were ever truly funny to begin with, I mean, <laughs> it's a good point. Yeah. And uh, but no, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, it's funny because of the fact that like I I I was so exhausted after covering the Atlanta Film Festival, which ended up for me ended up going about a week longer than uh, normal. But um, you know, the way I to your to your point to a certain extent, the way I sort of decompressed from that was it was it was actually watching a lot of eight nineties uh action movies. And yeah. I mean it's not it's not new stuff to me. I've seen all of this stuff before. And the thing that really stands out is that yeah, you're right. I mean, no is is Cliffhanger a good movie? To a certain extent, not really. Like no. after that opening, it's very standard. It's very generic movie, but I still I, I still enjoy it. But at the same time, you're not going to get me on Twitter and say, oh, this is a terrific movie. It's it's not. It never really well, was. Or, or, <laughs> yeah, or to be like, this is what all movies should be. All movies yeah. should be like <laughs> this. Here's what I have found when looking at the past, yeah. and, 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 and this connects to our subject here today. This all does. I have no emotional attachment to sexploitation films. <laughs> uh, I, I just don't. It's a, not a genre. There are people who are scholars of the genre because it's, it is an important piece of, you know, like feminist theory and all this, you know, uh, uh, ideas of how Hollywood depicts sex. And we'll get into it with some of these movies. Yeah. Um, and, and different ideas that were going on in the culture or at least in Hollywood during certain periods of American history. Like they, there's an intellectual way to approach this, I guess it's, my point is not just like sleaze, um, but it's still not a, it's a genre I was aware of, but it's not a genre that I have any great nostalgia for. Um, but I think what happens is we give enough time to pass, especially if it's a, a, a time period where you're either too young or didn't grow up with it per se, 
you can kind of look at it. And if you do put those intellectual lenses on, you can kind of look at it for what it is. You can glean, I think, a lot of understanding about the broader trends of filmmaking because filmmaking is all about movie making it's all about trends it's all about eras it's all about time periods it's, it's about people who are either in step or out of step with what's in the, going on in that time period and um yeah so it's it's i can look back at certain 90s action movies to your point now and ones that i were like eh, they were mid you know in the yeah. 90s they yeah whatever you look back at it and you go the story isn't there. It hasn't improved. Maybe even maybe it's worse now that I remember. But you marvel at the filmmaking because you realize, man, they're having to shoot this with enormous cameras, incredible, just the very cumbersome lighting setups mm-hmm. on thirty-five millimeter film. Not a lot of budget. Not a lot of time. Even even in for American action films, you know, they were they tended to be mid mid budget films unless huge stars were in. Yeah. And but you look at the stunt work and you're going, my God, because we don't get stunt work like that anymore. That yeah. that that type of filmmaking, that that practical type of filmmaking where people were jumping off of bridges and they were really blowing up the bridge. They found some town in America that needed their bridge blown up. They're like, hey, we'll do it in this if you let us do it for this movie. Mm-hmm. That's how it used to work, you know. <laughs> hey, you want that building to come down? We'll take that building down for you, right? Yeah. The Terminator 2 thing. Well, they're going to demo that building. Well, can we blow it up? Sure. You know, it's like, you're not going to, you don't see that anymore. It's all CG. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I just, I have a deeper, broader appreciation for f- movies shot on film than ever before. Cause it's increasingly um, less standard. Yeah. Uh, the colors, the tones, some of the n- lenses that were used in the eighties and nineties, you know, I think some of the work, because he tended to direct and uh, DP or be the cinematographer on his movies, I think some of the work, not the scripts, but some of the visual presentation of some Peter Himes films, mm-hmm. something visually we'll never see again, ever. And I find his movies incredibly visually rich, except for the relic, because you can't see it. But everything <laughs> else, you know, his 80s or early 90s work, even a movie like Sudden Death, which yeah. is not a good action movie, really. But then you look at it and you go, well, Powers Booth's giving you a hell of a performance. Um, Jean-Claude is doing incredible in-camera stunt work with a wide shot. Mm-hmm. Stunt performers he's working with. Like, it's, it's a level of fight choreography we don't get anymore, even in our action movies. Yeah. It's a level of the, the, the depth and the focus of the camera and the texture that you can see every bead of sweat that's coming off of Van Damme's face and the just the shine and the lens flares and everything. And it's not, it's not a put on. It's not like an aesthetic choice. It's just what they captured in the lens. Uh, I think is that's, that's awesome. So, but that movie's not awesome altogether, <laughs> but you know, story wise, script wise, acting wise, other than powers booth, who's just chewing scenery. But, but I so still, I find a deeper appreciation for, what was used to be standard, what used to be just middle of the road, standard movie making, a movie like Blue Thunder, which I just talked about for the 1980s, which is not a good movie in my opinion. It's like, but boy, when that helicopter appears in the sun and just all of a sudden appears in camera, then you know, that's not a CGI effect. That's just, they flew a freaking helicopter right. <laughs> through the setting sun 
at magic hour and and it's just a it's a visual trick where like you don't see it you don't see it you don't see it, and boom there it is oh my gosh you know <laughs> and they're really flying the last 30 minutes of that movie through downtown la having a like a, a stunt shootout but they're really there it's not composited shots or matte painting there are in downtown la flying in between skyscrapers and under bridges and in the la river yeah we don't get that anymore it's it's so it's um it doesn't retroactively make those movies better than movies today it just makes certain makes me appreciate certain aspects of those movies that we don't get anymore more and, it, and what's ironic is to sum this all up those are things that i used to and we as audiences used to take for granted yeah we used to so in 20 years, we're going to be looking back at a lot of this Marvel stuff and Flash and this recent Indiana Jones. And when all this shit is AI, we're going to go, remember when people used to be in movies? Oh, we yeah. need to go back to when people were in movies. And I'm not being funny. That's what's going to happen. Remember when people wrote movies? Oh, wow. I remember when people wrote movies. So whatever you hate today, you're going to be <laughs> nostalgic for in another 20 years. Yeah. Now, and I mean, you know, and to to your point on the AI, I mean, that's that's a big part of why we're probably head for the most amazing reckoning we've we've seen in this industry when it comes to the Writers Guild currently on strikes. Green yep. Actors Guild could very well go on strike yep. if they don't if they don't approve their deal. DGA could be going on strike. It could be an absolutely a breathtaking time to see what is going to happen in the future of this industry and that is and it's so much of it is about ai and so much oh yeah of, and i and streaming it's it's gonna be it's gonna be fascinating to see what happens in the uh in the aftermath but uh yeah you you know you were you were talking about like the the birth of kind of fan culture fandom sort of kind of taking over film criticism it's like you know, and you brought up being cool, which is really kind of ground zero for it anyway. And, yeah. you know, it's like, I, I started Sonic Cinema, or I started the process of bringing Sonic Cinema to uh, the more, to more online presence in 2003, so 20 years ago. And, you know, it's funny because of the fact that at the time, if you would ask me, like, what type of movie site I would have liked to have been, it would have been Ain't It Cool News. Yeah. It's like, oh, now that, that, that would have been know, anybody. That would have been oh, yeah. anybody. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I can't tell you how grateful I am that that ended up not being the direction <laughs> I ended up going. Yeah. I mean, you can, right. you can see, if you look at some of the early reviews in 2003, 2004 that got published, it's like, you could see that, like, that's, that was kind of where my sensibilities were was heading. And some of the things as far as like fan commentaries and stuff like that that we that are still available on on the website were heading, but you know, really wasn't until I started to really embrace filmmakers sending me their stuff to watch. And some of the really really low budget film festival yeah. only stuff. That's when that's when so much of my sensibilities, so much of my ideas of what Sonic Cinema could be changed. And I am so grateful. 
Uh, is, that, is that your way of saying you became less of an asshole? <laughs> I, it took that process still took a little bit of time, but <laughs> that process did still take a little bit of time. But but that um, was that was the thing though, right? That was the thing to be a film critic at that time, or like in that style of ain't cool news, which became the predominant style, right? Yeah, it was to, it was who could kind of shape their writing in a, in the most sharp-tongued way possible. Yeah. And yeah. now I mean now I mean people go viral because of like quippy little one one sentence things they post on Letterboxd. I mean that it's yeah. it's it's all the same thing and it's like you look at so many of the YouTubers and there are some fantastic YouTubers. I love sure. there's some great YouTubers. There are some great live streamers, but the live stream it's all a, you know, one of the things that, you know, it's all about the hot take. And that's one of the things. That, Bingo. And it's all about the hot take. It's all about having the sharpest take on movie. And, you know, it's, it's, it's like, no, that's not what I want. It's like, I, you know, not what I want to do. I want to just talk about film. Well, you, you want to know the dirtiest little secret, and everybody knows this, but. A dirty little secret that nobody wants to say out loud is most of these people who complain again about superhero movies, they don't actually have to cover them because no. they're not, they don't have a deadline from an editor that's like, you know, Olsen, we're sending you out to talk about to go watch the latest Flash film. Yeah. Make sure you get a, make sure you get your reveal back in. It's got to be a deadline for publishing is blah, 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 blah. like it doesn't exist anymore. You're doing it because those are the movies that are most likely to get the clicks and yeah. the views and the downloads on your podcast. Yeah. So what you could do is you could, if, if you're so bothered by it, you could just selectively choose to cover those, those movies you long for, those adult dramas, because they're, by the way, they're still being made. Yeah. And there are more movies being produced today than ever before. Mm -hmm. You just have to work a little harder to get to them. Yeah. Instead of going to the press screening for The Flash, so you could be the first person out the gate with that hot take, crapping on it or saying it's the greatest movie ever made um go watch uh you know whatever I, I can't think of a smaller film right now but you know go watch a smaller art house film right now yeah so you take get get your get a screener for something or go to a press screen for it and, and so that's why i have a hard time taking anybody who's that upset that serious because um you don't have to do it you're choosing yeah. to do this to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 I would say you have to like every movie that comes out, but there's an intellectual dishonesty in film reviewing now. And it's, it's actually started with Ain't It Cool News, unfortunately, which was, and it, it existed before that because the big controversy in film criticism, and Ebert got a lot of flack from this from people like Pauline Gale, was the junkets. Yeah. And the international junkets, what they used to do is when they would debut a movie, they would essentially pay for a giant freaking uh, smorgasbord at a beautiful palatial hotel, and they'd have buffet lines, and you'd meet the stars, and you'd hobnob, and you have dinner with them, and they'd give you thousands of dollars worth of what we now call swag. They just yeah. would load you up with a bunch of stuff, yeah. and it gave you an opportunity to interview the stars of the films. It was it was less structured than the press junkets of today. But you could sit down, you could have lunch with whoever, Mark Gable or Jimmy Stewart. Or, and it, this was a trend that went on forever and ever. Oh, yeah. And it was still, it was still going on in the 70s and the 80s. And 
you get the you get the hobnob and you meet the producers and you do this and that and there were film critics who said you shouldn't go to those because you're being bought whether mm-hmm. you know it or not subconsciously you you it's affecting how you're going to react to that film either more favorably or disfavorably right like because let's say you have a bad time at the junket a bad time at the party that somebody uh you know doesn't show up for their interview is are you gonna you know then they would have a screening at that that soiree mm-hmm. of the film and you'd go you'd go for the weekend sometimes internationally yeah you'd go overseas you'd go to freaking monaco to watch some mediocre movie and um but just for the chance to be able to have you know delicious food and be able to sit down with Clint Eastwood or something like that. Mm-hmm. And Ebert was famous for going there and hobnobbing with everybody. And so people looked at him as being a sort of a paid for in the pocket of the studios film critic. Cause Pauline Kael was famous for, I, I believe it was Pauline Kael. She was famous for, she wouldn't go to press screenings. She would only, she bought a ticket with her own money and wouldn't even ask for it to be reimbursed because she didn't want, she said that, you know, movies were a, reprobate discount art form they were not a real art form it was a bastardization of art mm-hmm. and so you needed to go to the dirtiest filthy movie house you could <laughs> with actual common people and hear their reactions and that tells you whether or not the movie's good you know plus your own instincts and so forth and so on but if you're just going to a press screen everybody's sitting there silently with their note notepad trying to get a, 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 a review done by deadline what the hell is that going to tell you yeah. You have to go where people aren't there because it's their job. And now people are going to quote unquote press screens, but they're influencer screenings. Yeah. And it's a bunch of YouTubers. And again, nothing against it, but it's the same thing. They're trying to come up with their hot, you know, hot take and to, to be the first person to get published and get the thing out on Letterboxd and do, so they can link to the YouTube. But it's just this mad scramble for attention because we live in now in a, 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 a not an information economy but an attention economy who can yeah. get attention fastest because it's so fleeting. And if that's who you're watching movies with, you're bound not to like most movies. <laughs> I mean, sorry to say, yeah. You know, yeah. Cause they're, 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 it's just, so I would just encourage, I know there are people who have podcasts and so forth who listen to you. I would just encourage more podcasters to watch less movies. They don't care about to watch more movies that are off the beaten path Forget, I mean, it's hard to say, hey, forget your downloads, but most of us aren't getting downloads anyway, so forget it. <laughs> We're all do getting downloads you... from each other. I mean, that's Correct. the thing. <laughs> yeah, do, yeah. Do what you want to do. And when it comes to new releases, if you cover new releases, don't go watch movies that you don't think you're going to like. Yeah. Because nobody's going to be like, oh my God, where cinema, toilet, divers, didn't put out their latest Indiana Jones review. And I apologize if there is a cinema toilet divers, but that was the trend for podcasts for a long time. This is like, you know, you know, shart fart fuck movies.com or whatever. Like, <laughs> you know, just nobody's dying to hear what you have to say about movies for the most part. Mm-hmm. You know, unless you're, unless you're corporately owned by Spotify. Yeah. So that's, <laughs> And even then, most people don't give a shit. So most people are going to look at the commercial and go, that's great. I can't wait. I can't wait to rent that on Amazon Prime Video or that movie looks good. I can't wait to watch that on Disney+. Plus." That's what the average person thinks when they see movies. They don't give a shit about the rest of this. 
where you're perseverating over a bunch of things literally nobody gives a fuck about except for you mm-hmm. and you're in a bubble of people who are just like you and they're perseverating and hand-wringing all the time and oh when are we going to make adult movies again oh god when are, you know oh my god when are we going to grow up as as uh, uh oh they're just oh they do this they make movies for children anymore man they've always mostly made movies for children because it's it's a, it's a medium for the most common person yeah it always that's what it been. is it always has been. It always has been. I the mean, only difference is, Brian, you used to be a child. That's the difference. Well, and the thing is, it's like, look, a trip to the moon was not high art at the time. Correct. It was revolutionary, but it wasn't high art. It was it's a special four. effects roller coaster. Yes. That's all it was, a spectacle. And it, it was for everyone. It, yes. For, like, seriously, if, if you seriously think that, you know, art, at any the movies at any time have always have just exclusively been about high art. It's like, yeah, you're looking at the film, you're looking at film completely wrong. You're and looking the, at less than one percent of all movies that have ever been made. Yeah, yeah. That period, you're you're neglecting ninety nine percent of every movie that's been made, including the ones that are, have destroyed. We don't have anymore. Yeah, you're, you're just you're not with it, and that's. No. What bothers me the most is I hear so much of this. Uh, I just see so much of this stuff. And I'm like, man, you're, you guys, I, I guess what frustrates me the most is I see certain people, no names, please, say, man, we started this at the same time. And I've been changed uh, for the better, I think, by this experience. And I've seen a lot of people just get bitter. Yeah. And it's like, just stop. Yeah. Go do something else. Find a different hobby. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's okay not to talk about movies on the internet. Yeah. Talk about sports. Be bitter about sports like Brian is. <laughs> <laughs> talk about the Atlanta Falcons or the Cleveland Browns, for God's sakes. Move on with your life. <laughs> so, I don't know. I guess we should probably get to your actual episode, we, right? We probably talk, should, talk. yeah. I mean, we, we've, already got, we've already got, like, a normal episode of episode. somebody else's <laughs> podcast discussion here. Uh, I did want, but before we do get to our subject, you yeah. brought up so you brought up your John Woo episode, which I I do love um, the discussion that you and our mutual friend Carlo from the Movie Loot had. Um, you you want to know something, Brian? I wanted to do that episode for a very long time. Finally got to it. Episode flop. That's mm-hmm. a flop. Not because I don't think it's a good episode. It's just nobody gives a shit right now about John Woo. Yeah, I know, and it's. I mean, hopefully, and when that was, that's kind of the when, point of the episode. <laughs> ho- hopefully, when yeah, and they should be because he's they, he's yeah. the fucking master. But um, yes. hope you know, hopefully, when his new movie comes out, maybe he'll start getting some uh, start getting some clicks. But no, I did have one question I wanted to ask you about that. Sure. Um, so the if you haven't listened to it, be be sure to check it out because of the fact that I love the conversation that. Jason and Carlo have about uh, Wu's work, and you know one of the things I love about it is that both of you guys were kind of novices to yeah. his Hong Kong work, and yeah. that's actually very exciting. And the the question, so you you guys covered four of his more famous Hong Kong films as well mm-hmm. as Hard Target, his first which American, was his American. Yeah. And I was kind of curious, why did you choose? hard target and just go right into his first American film as opposed to sticking with his Hong Kong work with like a better tomorrow two or once a thief. I just want to see if, 
the trajectory of what happens to somebody once they enter the Hollywood system, especially at that time, you know, what changed, what didn't yeah. change. And I think it was going to provide the biggest contrast. If we had just stuck with only the Hong Kong stuff, there is a sameness to those movies. Yeah. Uh, from he's, he's very interested in themes of brotherhood mm-hmm. and uh, people on opposite sides of the law and the, uh, the consequences of violence and all these sorts of things. And it's like, and some of those are very um, Christian themes because he is a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the, and, and he is uh, essentially a, a religious minority in his yeah. uh, place of origin. So that makes him kind of a little bit of an outsider. He's also, you know, coming from Hong Kong, which is uh, its own little culture, its own different culture. Um, in Hong Kong cinema, which was very, very sort of out of step with American cinema for a long time. And then, um, but very much pilfered by Hollywood. And so it's like, okay, <laughs> what, hap- what happens when studio executives get their hands on John Woo, who's, because uh, all they're going to see is spectacle. They're not going to yeah. understand that spectacle is symbolic to him. Yeah. And then most of his movies are actually anti-violence, which is, seems ridiculous when you watch something like Hard Boiled, but they really are. Yeah. They, like, oh, yeah. That's his, and if you ever read an interview with him, his stance is, He's a pacifist, so... Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think that's a big part of the reason why after uh, he left Hollywood, he really has not made a lot of movies because even he said after uh, 9-11, he just didn't feel like he could do that type yeah. of movie anymore. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, it's... it's uh, I mean, we're not talking about John Woo, but it's like I, I love... You know, if you've listened to this podcast, you know how much I love John Woo. But, um... Well, yeah. well, I guess my, you brought it up. My, my point was saying it was a flop was I don't regret doing it because it, again, it's something I wanted to, it helps me understand him as a filmmaker better. Yeah. And it also under, helps me understand 90s action movies better because I could say off the top of my head, because I knew for a fact that Hollywood stole John Woo's style. And that's oh, yeah. a lot of what you're seeing in the 90s. Mm-hmm. It, it, but, um, to say that with any sort of nuance or depth or really fully understand what the hell I'm talking about and understand what they didn't translate, which is what they did translate was the artistry, the creativity, the innovation, and the, like the pathos for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. So the, the episode is, I think right now, probably one of the lowest downloaded episodes of the current season uh, by a good margin. And I don't regret doing it whatsoever because um, it, uh, I wanted to do it. So I would just encourage you, make more flops. <laughs> Don't I mean, just stick to the stuff that you know is going to get the downloads. Well, and the thing is, it's like that's ultimately why I'm grateful that the over the past few years, the structure of this show has become the structure of this show because of the fact that it's, it's for me, it's about I, I want to explore film history. I want to explore... Yeah. Subjects that interest me and interest our guests, and you know, it's like the the episode before this one was uh, was Cassavetti, and you know, oh wow, like, I, I, really, I, I didn't realize that when I name yeah. dropped him earlier. Yeah. And you know, it was a subject that the uh, we're talking about the dad, right? We're talking about Nick. John Cassavetti's, yeah, or John Cassavetti's yeah. rather, yeah, yeah. Nick's the son, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I I asked my guest who I hadn't. Chris Esper, who hadn't been on the podcast in a while. And I'm like, so what do you want to talk about? And he's like, I want to talk about Cassavetes. It's like, and that's kind of a blind spot for me. It's like, 
it's kind of a blind spot for me too. So yeah, we ended up yeah. watching Shadows and Faces and uh, Woman Under the Influence, and we talked for a great deal about it. And it was great yeah. because of the fact that now that I feel like I I feel like I have more of an understanding of how independent cinema in general yeah. expanded, and also kind of because Chris is a filmmaker himself, how it's kind of the same as it was when Cassavetes was doing it. Hundred percent. Yeah. Um, but yes, to your point, and you you've teased this uh, this discussion <laughs> more than I have today in in our uh, pre discussion. Uh, we are we are talking about sexploitation films. We are talking about quote unquote erotic cinema, and I wanted to share a Twitter Twitter interaction that Jason and I had back in January. That was kind of the genesis for this episode. Uh, so a friend of ours on Twitter mentioned something about Ravel's Bolero, uh, the very famous piece of music that most people know from the Lake Edwards film Ten, which was Bo Derrick, which starred Bo Derrick. And I made the comment, Bo Derrick having a movie called Bolero not be the one that music is associated with <laughs> makes my head explode, to which Jason responded, if Brian ever has me back, it must be to discuss Bolero. <laughs> and now, we're not doing it. And we're not doing it. Um, <laughs> but I mean, actually, that. But honestly, that is that is a good catalyst for another point of discussion here, which is there are several movies in this exploitation um, genre that are not really available. Yes. At the time, I think Bolero was on like Stars or HBO Max or whatever it was. Yep. whatever it's called now, but it's not available for streaming anymore, which is kind of why we pivoted away from it. Yeah. But, you know, it's funny because of the fact that there was only one, we'll get to it, there was only one film of these three that we're talking about now that was constant throughout. The yes. other two changed, and a big part of the reason is availability. Um, and by availability, I, we mean even physical media availability. So physical uh, media some, availability as well as streaming availability. Yeah, a hundred percent. So like you think, okay, well, they're not available to stream. Maybe I'll just get a Blu-ray or a DVD or whatever. And they're either cost prohibitive or even there just weren't very many like DVDs made of them, ironically. Yeah. As even on the secondary market, they're very hard to come by. And I am um, I have the ability, you know, to uh, to source movies uh on physical media and uh, I called around the country yeah. to places I knew that would have them. And they're like, man. And and I, <laughs> it's funny because I called one place. I'm like, look, I'm not a, cause I had a list of titles. We had like a list of potential ones. So I'm yeah. like, do you have this, 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 this. I'm like, I'm not a pervert. <laughs> uh, I am you know, going to be reviewing these for a podcast. And I just have, I want to track them down in I got the same story every time, which is if we do get them in, they are immediately sell out because they're so hard to come. Yeah. By. Yeah. And, and there, it's not primarily perverts who are collecting these. It's primarily film historians. Right. And film and film history, like students, you know, hobbyist or whatever, because the sexploitation genre basically existed in this really weird window of time, uh, post Hayes code, 
during the sexual revolution. They're mostly known for being around the 60s. When we get into the 70s, they start to become known as sort of the European erotica film, like you said, Brian. Yeah. Whether that be Swedish or French or whatever, but it's a European erotica film. And they kind of became a little bit more mainstream in the 70s. Um, these are not triple X titles. They're either rated R or single X. And uh, the one that would probably be the most, if you want to say, semi-pornographic, or at least has that reputation, is Emmanuel. Yeah. But honestly, I think if you put Emmanuel now, out now, it either go to streaming is not rated or TVMA. Yeah. It's not... It's not explicit. It's it's very no, it's very tame. Uh yeah. and, I mean even it's, yeah. It, it's we'll get into it when we talked about Emmanuel. Yeah. It's more so the perspective is more leering and perverse. Yeah. <laughs> the, oh, the, the the male gaze, the gaze <laughs> of the film. Oh god, there's there's so much to talk about with regards to that film, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it's it's more conceptual <laughs> and it's more the way the camera looks at bodies that is more pornographic than the actual film itself yeah um and then the other the other two are sexploitation films but they're not i mean one is just mostly boobs and the other one is a female stunt double for uh um what's her name brooke shields Uh, Shields, which we'll talk about because she's got a recent documentary but yeah so we ended up with these three beyond the valley of the dolls emmanuel and um, the Blue Lagoon, uh, because these are the ones that at press time were actually available to us. <laughs> and the thing is, but the thing is, it's like one of the things that I said to you was it's like we, we, so the reason we touched on about Beyond the Value of the Dolls is because Ace Russ Meyer, who is yes. very well known for his uh, TNA films and especially Busty the women movies. Part, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> and you know, a big part of the reason you wanted to touch on this one was because it is Rob, written by Roger Ebert, and yeah. um, the only movie he ever got a screenplay credit on. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah, that is yeah. absolutely correct. And um, you know, then we talked about then we touched on Manuel, which is the only one that really was consistent throughout this this entire discussion. And then yeah. um, we were talking about, we were trying to think about another movie on the back end of this. And I kept throwing out some titles, some more well-known titles. And it's like, nah, it really wasn't sticking with either of us. And then you said, and then I said something about, well, it's like, I kind of want to make this about some, looking at this genre from kind of a historical perspective. And yeah. you touched on the Blue Lagoon. And it's like, that's actually not, it's not a bad and it's a really good choice but and the thing is it's like i i saw it yesterday and it was honestly the first time i'd seen it i didn't see it when i was younger but one of the things that's interesting is you know even 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 more so than beyond the value of the dolls uh blue lagoon is very tame very tame it i mean there's only one sex scene in it it's mostly nudity um But honestly, even in that perspective, it's still worth talking about with regards to this subject. And we'll again, we'll get into it because of everything regarding uh, Brooke Shields and the way yeah. Hollywood tends to sexualize uh, younger actresses. Um, yeah. But so we're going to start with 1970s 
Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, uh, co-written by Roger Ebert and Russ Meyer. The screenplay is by Ebert and directed by Russ Meyer. So the original discuss the original film that you had put out for Russ Meyer was called Vixen. Yeah, impossible were, to find. Yeah, you were unable to find it. I was fortunate enough to find a Videodrome in downtown Atlanta for rent. And so I rented it, and it's like, wow, this is such a... And it was... I, it, <laughs> it, it's like, wow, this is... His, his, his... You know, it's like, say what you will about Meyer. It's like, he, he is somebody who certainly is... He's not subtle in anything. And, no. you know, it's like you really kind of get the feeling of then Vixen. But he's also somebody who really is very bare bones when it comes to filmmaking. And, I mean, I think Vixen is a really big example of that. And, I mean, so much of it is you, you can see the template for, like, Kinemax cinema to come, like, yeah. 30 yeah. years down the road in that way. Yeah. Right. But one of the reasons that that will be a fascinating discussion is there's a lot of casual racism on the part of the main character. And it's like, the hell is this doing in here? Well, he's a really complicated <laughs> filmmaker. Yeah. Because, and we'll get into well, it with Beyond the Value of the Dolls because well, I, I think that <laughs> watching it, there's some complicated aspects of that movie, too. Well, OK, so <laughs> let's start. Let's start with this. Let's start here. There's a misnomer out there because it has the word exploitation, and that's taken on a, a profoundly different, slightly, slight, yeah, profoundly different meaning, especially younger people on Twitter. So yeah. it's just still old men yelling at the clouds, kind of a thing. Sorry, Brian, but um, I, I, it doesn't mean it. that the it doesn't mean that the actors and actresses and people involved in the movie were exploited. I think yeah. that's what people hear now. What's exploitation? It doesn't mean they necessarily weren't, and we'll get into that whether or not, say, Brooke Shields was or not. Yeah. But it what it really means is that they were exploiting a taboo subject that would have be of public interest to get butts in seats. Yeah. So it's for instance, black exploitation. Well, they don't make movies with black lead characters at that time, and still very rarely do today. So you had filmmakers who were like, we're going to have a predominantly all African-American or black cast, and it's going to be a, a movie, oftentimes maybe even written and directed, starring a black person. And it's going to directly appeal to, it's going to exploit the fact that they don't make movies for black people. So black people are going to want to go see those movies. Uh, the same thing with you know traditional Hollywood films at this time, you know, we didn't have nudity in them. And if they did, they wasn't gratuitous or they, they weren't highly sexualized films. That would change by the eighties, which is what pretty much killed this genre. But so, uh, pornography was not readily available. If it was, you had to go to a special theater to go see it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So what if you took a more conventional movie, but you had boobs in it? Well, guys are going to, or people, I should say, are going to pay money to come see boobs or violence, mm -hmm. or whatever, right? So you're exploiting people's interest in something that was underseen or taboo. It's all that it means. Yeah. Now, and what's ironic is a lot of the women, the very they were usually like large bust models, big boobed models, 
I did a lot of topless stuff and stag films and hygiene films and nudist films and all that sort of stuff, which is, those are all things that you have to Google if you're over 18 that don't exist anymore. <laughs> um, sort of an underground market of independent cinema uh, that nobody hardly talks about anymore. Uh, or they did, you know, they posed in Playboy or, or less uh, scrupulous places than even Playboy. Um, most of them weren't treated very well. And they weren't paid very well. But when it came to Russ Meyer, they still weren't paid very well because nobody, there was no money to make these movies. Yeah. But they will all say that Russ treated them very, very well. And that of all the people they worked with, that he was the one that treated them the most and asked for their input on the movie or this, that, whatever, their character. And he had a very, he had a thing, and it's probably a fetish, for dominant women. Dominant villainesses, basically, uh, with giant boobs. Yeah. And that those are the movies he made with dominant women, killer women, killer women on the loose with switchblades, you know, wearing other jackets. They're going to go out there and slice you up, seduce you and slice you up kind of a thing. And, um, and so initially his movies were all written off as just being sleaze. And then it wasn't until feminist film critics actually went back and looked at his movies. And there's debate even within feminist film criticism, obviously, but where they were sort of reappraised as being some of the proto-feminist films. So it's very interesting. He's a very complicated character. This movie, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, that we both watched, it was started off as a quasi-sequel to a movie that most people don't know, which is The Valley of the Dolls, Dolls Being Pills, which was this drug melodrama, essentially, mm -hmm. about you know falling into drug use and all this sort of stuff. Um, and it was panned by critics and panned by people. And so they want to make sort of a quasi-sequel almost parody of that movie by taking it even further into the absurd. Yeah. Because the original was sort of trying to be earnest, but was absurd because it was so ridiculous. Mm. And they, to the point where they have to, I think at the beginning and the end, distance it from that. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a sequel to Val and all the marketing ended up becoming, this is not a sequel to Valley of the Dolls. This is beyond the Valley of the Dolls. You know, and, uh, for legal reasons, they had to completely distance themselves from it because they had yeah. no right to make a sequel to the movie. Um, and so really it's like, uh, what it feels like to me is it feels like Roger Ebert, who is notorious, not notorious, I shouldn't say notorious, is said himself in his autobiography, Life Itself, that he was always a uh, admirer of large-breasted women. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, he, <laughs> and he goes into great detail about his rendezvous with large-breasted women on trains in Europe and whatnot. Um, it's him kind of making a parody of these paranoid, a couple of different things. Then, you know, we need to go back to the real days of cinema. The 1960s... Um, band musical drama which yeah. is actually almost a subgenre which well, this, actually this goes back to the 50s this is oh yeah it's true 50s. yeah this is the 50s yeah. too yeah um uh josie yeah. the pussycats is almost a parody of that same type of movie then mm -hmm. the early 2000s but yeah and here, here's what here's here's what it stuck out to me brian cynthia myers is absolutely stunning in this movie yeah plays the bisexual senator's daughter. Mm -hmm. She is absolutely gorgeous. Most of these women are gorgeous women. Yeah. 
the tone of this movie is somewhere between Studio 54, the, <laughs> the one with Mike Myers, yeah, and Boogie Nights. Mm. Like, if you pitch this slightly different, there's elements in here I'm like, PT saw this, right? Like, yeah. Like, oh, no like, doubt. No doubt. Uh, no um, doubt. Like, this is fucking Boogie Nights. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is, there. there's so much about this. Because, I mean, like like you said, I mean, and, and it's wild to think that 20th Century Studios owns this movie. Because it is Disney. distributed by Fox, <laughs> so that means Disney, Disney owns this movie now. Um, <laughs> is this on Disney Plus overseas in the UK, you think? I doubt it. Oh, no way. There's, there's no way in hell. That would be, although, God, I, I hope it gets that way at some point. That would be awesome. Um, <laughs> they, they own the weirdest shit now that they own 20th Century Studios. They but, certainly you know, do. Uh, that's, that's why, that's why that, uh, that merger was so, so hilarious for so many people. But um, no, I mean, you, yeah, I mean, this goes back to 50s, like, band era. Like, I, one of the things that I kept thinking about when it came to this movie was, you, you watch Mystery Science Theater, right? I've seen it, yeah. Okay. There, they did an episode on this movie from the 50s called The Beatniks. And it's very much like that old, you know, it's like overnight success, you know, yeah. criminal becomes an oversight night success singer and stuff like that. But his, his old life is pulling him back in and back in and stuff like that. There are elements of that from this movie. And, yeah. but I mean, you know, the, the thing that, the thing that you gotta love about Eber, and you know, when you were when you were talking about the opening of the title of the movie, I kept thinking about the documentary life itself where Martin Scorsese's talked about it, it's like it goes beyond the body of the doll. It goes beyond it. Just right. yeah, what what is that title? But right. um no, I mean you you can tell that there's there's a I don't even know if it's I don't even know if it's it's necessarily satirical, but it's it's just plain silly tone yes. to this movie right off the bat. And I mean, it stays that way for 110 minutes. It's absolutely insane. Um, well, even the mellow, even the melodrama of it is is oh, insane. Yeah. I mean, we it ends up devolving. It starts off as a, a, a movie about a, a small time band that catches a big break via an orphan girl reconnecting with her estranged rich aunt who just yeah. inherited money from <laughs> her grand her grandmother's the aunt's mother yeah. and she's this lost heir but the lawyer the aunt's lawyer wants to get his hands in the money <laughs> and there's gigolos that want the money and then there's gender ambiguous uh shakespeare yeah. prose <laughs> Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll we'll get to Ronnie yeah. here because of the fact that yeah. there's a lot to Z talk Man. about when it comes to that ending. And, um, and then then you, then you have they devolves into a soap opera in the second half where yeah. this character's fucking that character and that character's fucking that character and this character's in love with this person but they're sleeping with this person and that person gets hit by a car and the one guy gets so sad he throws himself off of the uh, onto the stage during a live <laughs> TV appearance and. Crack cracks his neck in the funniest paralyzation scene. I've I've never it's I've never seen it. it's somebody being paralyzed has never been funnier than in this oh movie. It is it's, and then where they jostle his neck around and no oh, don't move him, don't move him. Yeah. Oh then he miraculously <laughs> learns to walk and get out of his wheelchair just in time to stop the 
the uh, transvestite killer. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the way this film loses the plot, I mean, there's nothing quite like it, and I, no, I kind really of love isn't. it. Um, you know, one, I, I actually did not see this movie until a couple of years ago. And one of the things I, I kept thinking about when it came to the movie was, <clears throat> if you've ever, if you ever read Ebert's great movies review, one of the ones that sticks out to me was his review of La Dolce Vita by Fellini. And yeah. I couldn't help but think watching this movie, and I mean, it obviously is a very different tone than the Fellini in so many different ways. I mean, this is more of an absurdist comedy than than anything, but I, I kind of feel like, to a certain extent, I think there are elements of this movie in terms of being seduced by fame, in terms of, you know, the, the way that we kind of lose ourselves in the circus that yeah. he probably in, was inspired by when it comes to La Dolce Vita, and he wanted to bring some of that into this story, too. Yeah. I mean, it, it very much feels like a script written by a film critic. It, it feel, very much feels like somebody who, who understands tropes and kind of wants to do his own, their own variation on those tropes. And I, I think, you know, it's like having a, I think having a filmmaker like Meyer who, you know, specialize in a very, certain type of exploitation film uh, is it, you can I mean this really was if if Eber was going to write a script at any time it really does kind of make sense that it's for this movie well what's interesting about this movie is I think it was released at Cannes originally and it was the biggest budgeted thing that Russ Meyer ever worked on I mean mm -hmm. it was it, it, this was like I don't know 10 20 times the budget of most of his movies yeah and uh you know it was a, a huge failure uh, commercially and critically and was sort of a black stain of the the black sperm <laughs> <laughs> you will drink a taste of my black sperm it was a black stain kind of on Ebert's career it was something that everybody would always bring out when they were talking when he would critique their movie, they'd be like, oh yeah, well you wrote Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Yeah. I don't, I can't imagine how this played when it originally aired or it originally was released, but I would say now in 2023, it is, I don't take it as an earnest film about the, the, the moral pitfalls of free sex LA in the oh, yeah. late, early <laughs> 70s. I don't take it that way at all. I take it as a, 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 a satire, a parody, a, like you said, a film critic who is kind of taking all of these B-movie tropes that, and, and A-picture tropes, you know, melodrama and all this sort of stuff that was, again, very popular during the 50s and 60s and into the 70s, and just taking it to its most absurd conclusion. Yeah. And it's interjected with a lot of boobs because of Russ Meyer and, and, and Ebert himself. But mm -hmm. um, I think what I also, I couldn't help but see this through the lens of purity culture. Yeah. And here's purity culture, for those that don't know, is a phrase that's used to describe the sexual mores of typically American evangelical churches, in particular, 
it's it's existed before that, but it became very popularized uh, in the 80s and 90s, and through books like I Kissed Dating Goodbye and this, that, whatever, True Love Waits and Purity Rings and all this sort of stuff. And some people uh, refer to it as crotch Christianity because it's Christianity that's only concerned with your crotch and not the rest of your life. And I was just thinking to myself, as somebody who has watched a great deal of documentaries about the 60s, 70s, watched a great many movies from the 60s and 70s, those are arguably my two favorite movie decades, by the way. Uh, at least so says Letterboxd. Those are my highest rated decades. Um, mm. No wonder those people who were in their 20s during the pre-AIDS, post-birth control, free-love era, where the first time you could have wantonous sex without the fear of childbirth, um, and, and pre, again, pre-AIDS, the, the, the heyday of American uh, ho-baggery, no wonder those men and women who then went on to from go from hippies or wannabe hippies to yuppies in the 80s and suburban soccer moms. No wonder those people were so preoccupied and so <laughs> fearful of their children having any kind of sex because they were the most debaucherous generation <laughs> in American history since the flappers. Yeah. Yeah. They, the reason why purity culture is so obsessed with sex is yeah. because the boomer generation grew up primarily religious in America, left religion in their teens and 20s. Historically, the great shift came back to religion once they became middle class, acceptable, you know, sort of late 20s, early 30s suburbanites. They went back to church put their kids back to church and were absolutely terrified that their children were going to have the same type of orgies and drug use. And that's where the just say no to drugs, mm -hmm. all the stuff that we grew up with, Brian, yeah. the fears about sex and drugs and rock and roll and all this sort of stuff. That's because they did it all. They projected all of their <laughs> youth onto us. Mm-hmm. Nobody has anybody ever reconciled that? Has anybody ever reconciled the fact that that purity culture, which fucks up an entire generation, two generations, multiple of a young, generations? I mean, it's uh, yeah. still going on. Let's not act yes. like this is in the past. It's true. It's true. That <laughs> purity culture has fucked so many people up. Has anybody reconciled? It's because those people were sexual deviants <laughs> and they were projecting onto us. Their fears, their, they, what they, they, they couldn't deal with their internalized shame, and so they projected it onto us and built entire cultures around their shame. Well, I, I think, you know, I mean, the, the boomer, and look, I mean, the boomer generation was the generation that, I mean, I, I think they were, they were the, also the last, they were also arguably the last generation where whatever their parents told them about how to be successful in life came true. Right. That's they're really true. the last generation where that was the case. Our but Brian, they're also on, famously known. Yeah, yeah, no, not, not the case at all. They're, but they're also famously known as the me generation. Oh yeah. 
That, that was their label when yeah. they were in their teens and 20s. And what's their number one complaint to this day about <laughs> Gen X and Zoomers and millennials? All they care about is themselves. It's just me, 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 me. Yeah. Everything baby boomers have to say about the world is a projection of their own. They were, they, what's, the, what's the classic line? They were born on third base and, and, and thought they hit a triple. Mm -hmm. Like, you just happen to be born during a time of incredible post-war prosperity in America. And you thought, and, and mostly because you, the greatest generation suffered horribly uh, through all kinds of calamity and, and ensured that you would do better than them through self-sacrifice. Yeah. You ate it all up and you're still eating it all up. You destroyed the planet and you had orgies and free drug use and all this sort of stuff that you're so paranoid Everybody else would out. Would, honestly, they're so paranoid that everybody else would be like them that it, that we would somehow take away something for them. Yeah. And this movie, to me, is the height of the uh, both the absurd desire of boomers and the absurd fears of boomers. That, that, is, my, a, that is a very yeah. fascinating read on that. And by you know, I I also think, and it's I like the movie. One. By the way, I, oh, I thought it was good, hilarious. I, I think it's I think it's I honestly it the best movie we're talking about this week. Oh, hundred um, percent. Yes. No, and that's that's the thing about it because of the fact that you know, and I you know, and when you were talking about it in terms of parody culture, it's like when it comes to it, this does kind of feel like a parody, and it feels yes. very much of a piece with the stuff Mel Brooks was doing with Young Frankenstein Blazing Saddles. And, I mean, in terms of making making fun of tropes, making fun of ideas, yeah, yeah. but also, you know, because, oh my God, the moralizing you know the difference, at the end the, of this movie is fucking ridiculous. <laughs> but you know, the, awesome. the, 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 the moralizing at the end is something straight out of the 50s. Yeah. The voiceover that comes yeah. on is like, you know, it's, it's no different than the added tact on quasi moralizing at the end of psycho right where it's yeah, like yeah yeah it's the same sort of shit and but what's hilarious about this and, and well i would say the difference and why i think this is maybe funnier than some of the mel brooks stuff is mel brooks was making a movie and knew mel brooks wrote punchlines yeah <laughs> this movie has no actual punchlines for the most part no the entire movie and I think that's the disconnect. If you wanted to say that, you say, "Well, is this a great parody film or not?" I think the the what you could argue is that Ebert, it's so nerdy, it's so geekily written mm -hmm. that that the the if there are punchlines, they're very obtuse. Yeah, and and so the the way it ends up playing is it almost ends up playing earnest. Mm -hmm. It almost ends up playing straight. And if you watch this through the lens of this is supposed to be a serious movie, then this, but yes, this is one of the all-time biggest turkeys ever. But I don't, and maybe it's projection, but I don't think so. I think it is a, uh, I think it's mocking all of this stuff. Yeah. Um, even the way the characters speak, like the 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 sort of semi outdated a mix of outdated beatnik and hippie lingo but it's in the 70s like it's just the whole thing the whole thing is about one degree away from austin powers it really is yeah yeah and i i enjoyed it on that level um i thought yeah i i thought this is yeah uh, I, 
yeah. One of the reviews for the film, which I thought was hilarious, is um, is this was from uh, Charles uh, Champlin from the L.A. Times. This was a uh, contemporary review. It is a grievously sick melange of hyper mammalian girls. That's a great line. Obvious double entendres and sadistic violence. Hyper mammalian girls. <laughs> Hyper mammalian girls. I mean, you know. <laughs> like, here's, okay. All of these movies are basically, quote unquote, dirty movies because they show nipples. Yeah. And they either feign towards, well, I should say two of the three. They either feign towards or show same-sex attraction or bisexuality. Yeah. And because of that, they instantly become lurid. They instantly become dirty. They instantly yeah. become, you know, well, there's something perverse about this. Uh, why? Because a young girl is seduced by an older woman because we see two pairs of breasts touch each other. The whole time I was watching this, I was just thinking, and even with some of Emmanuel, I was like, is this that far off now from what you could see on Euphoria? Oh, no. Not, t- no, not totally, not but just nudity No, wise. no, not at all. Yeah. No. People, are eat- people are eating ass on girls 10 years ago. Yeah. Like, we're just way past this. And, I, and so... I think some of the revulsion that mainstream audiences had towards some of these movies, it's just, uh, again, a different sexual ethic, a different sensibility. But what's, what's hilarious is you have these older film critics at the time who are watching these young 20-year-old, you know... <sighs> Brian, the fact of the matter is everybody's horny when they're in their 20s. Yeah. People are horny, yeah. they experiment... They do drugs, or they drink too much, or they have too much sex, or they look at too much porn. Now, in our day, you know, there, there's, there's, that's when you have more freedom to explore your sexuality, and that's when people do it, typically in their early 20s. And when you have movies about people in their early 20s, or movies that are made by people who never left their early 20s, at least mentally, this is the sort of stuff you get. It doesn't matter whether it's happening in the 60s, the 50s, the 40s. You can, some of the first photographs ever taken are of nude women. Yeah. So the first movies ever shot are of breasts. This is just the world that we live in. Uh, and yeah, I, I actually, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, I guess is sexploitation. I, I almost, I feel like if it did have Russ Meyer's name on it, I don't know if it would have got stuck with that tag. No, I, I don't know. Well, there's a lot of boobs. There's a lot of boobs, yeah. There, there's, yeah. there's a lot of boobs, and but not much. Honestly, not much more than boobs. You get a couple of butt shots, but there's, there's not, yeah. there's not gratuitous sex. It's just no, boobs. that's no, that's <laughs> it. But and the, the thing is, that's one of the things that's kind of interesting about all three of these movies is that so much of it is suggestive. Yes. So much of what we see in these three movies, and two of these movies are rated X, or were rated X. Well, Emmanuel, which is arguably the again is, the most like, hardcore of it, has a sex scene that they just like an old Hollywood movie. They pan away from it. We see people wrapped up in blankets afterwards. Oh my God! Yeah, this it's is like what the hell? So, <laughs> no, I mean you know and the thing is, it's like so much of you know. And think about the reason why they changed the X rate. You know, part of the reason they changed the X to NC seventeen was because of the fact that. Porn had basically co-opted the X rating because the MPAA never copyrighted the way they did the other one. But, you know, the the funny thing, the hilarious thing is, you know, so many people, when they think X-rated movies, when they think NC-17, they naturally think towards porn. But when you watch 
some of these movies that were ri- originally rated X, that were originally rated NC-17, they're so tame now. It's ridiculous. Yes. The idea that, I mean, and, you know, think of the first NC-17 movie, Henry and June. That movie's so fucking tame. There's nothing in that that yeah. deserves an NC-17 rating. Well, you let's know? be honest. Most of those movies got that labeled either because they were made by outsiders of the Hollywood system or they, the subject matter of a lot of those movies was you had same-sex yeah. issues, either sometimes, you know, tastefully, sometimes not. And that's, yeah. well, that's what, that's a big part of what it was with Henry and June. It was because of yeah. the same-sex aspect of it. Right. You'll have same-sex stuff going on in those movies. Again, not always tastefully or in line with current sensibilities, but what we had same-sex representation. Yeah. Um, uh, or you had people of color or, uh, mm-hmm. or interracial relationships. Yep. All of a sudden, you know, it's fine to show two people in bed, but if it's two women, two men, uh, a person of color and, and a white person, well, I don't know. <laughs> I think we saw too and, much nipple. Well, well and, that, and that speaks to the puritanical idea of the MPAA. Yeah. I mean, the MPAA is always... It it basically is in a way it's always been the Hayes Code by another name. It's yeah. always what it's been. Um, but yeah, no, I mean that beyond the value of the dolls is genuinely entertaining. That's one of the funny things about that is that this is a movie that yeah, it's got a lot of it's got a lot of boobs, it's got a lot of nudity in it, but it is a genuinely entertaining ride to go on in this film. I mean, it's one absurd <laughs> scenario of melodrama stacked on top of another. Yeah. And you're like, and what <laughs> are they going to do next? And he just, they just keep upping the ante of where the hell is this coming from? Like if there had been an evil twin that came back with a black mustache at some point in this movie, I'd have, I would have believed it. Oh but yeah. The fact that yeah. Mr. Z or whatever his name is, uh, the fact that Z man, uh, the, the fact that at the end of the movie, it's revealed that he's been, <laughs> Okay, so on the one hand, it's a insensitive depiction of trans people. Yes, I was I was gonna say it's like oh my god, I have so many complicated, I have so many thoughts on, on that hand, ending. Oh my god. On the other <laughs> hand, it's a it's a woman pretending to be a man. I, I don't even know she's not even so much trans as she's pretending to be a man. So that they could yeah. be a record producer, so they could be taken seriously, but they're still attracted to men. Yeah. And so he's this. She's battling the fact. Z Man is battling the fact that they want to be a sexy ingenue and a seductress, sort of a black widow sort of figure, femme fatale, but they present hypermasculine so they can get ahead in a record business. Yeah. And if you don't understand that there's humor and absurdity in that. That that isn't directly it, it, the movie. It's it's bad. <laughs> I will say but that that part is like, oh my god, that was such a cringeworthy part rewatching it because of the fact that it, I'd forgotten it, about that and I. But I don't know the joke there. If you want to call it a joke, to me, it's. I would say and this is this is worse almost, but it's almost as if Ebert isn't even thinking about trans people when he's writing that. Yeah. No, it, no, you, he's you just don't th- get the, He's thinking in terms of binary gender. And he, he's also thinking about what more can I add to this? Like, I've already got somebody in the Nazi costume. What more can I add to this that just it takes the absurdity of this whole thing up to 11? 
Oh, well, yeah, the idea that like this random German butler bartender and this palatial hippie disco psychedelic party orgy scene is a named after a real uh, German war criminal. And the idea is that when he, he didn't escape to Argentina, he escaped to California. Yeah. And yeah, by the end of it, he's just in a not like that. Honestly, that to me was I got the joke initially of like, oh, well, this is so-and-so. It's, but he's really so-and-so. Isn't that trippy, man? Like, I got the joke of like, you know, whatever, hidden Nazis in Hollywood. And, and it, that, what that commentary was, I got that. I was shocked that we then see him do a full Hell Hitler salute in a Nazi uniform at the end of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> that, to me, was a little bit too far. I was like, oh. But yeah. that, it's, a di- it's a difference in sensibilities. At a certain point, though, you're right. He is just trying to throw as much onto the page up the ante of the shock factor yeah paralyzation getting out of wheelchairs i mean the fact that we at the end where the dude is laid out in his wheelchair on the ground and he can't walk and z-man uh um uh i forget all these characters names maybe peg or whatever but she comes out and she's like uh um there's somebody dead in there and their head (laughs) is missing yeah and it's played (laughs) for absolute horror it's played for absolute horror and within a split second, as she says his head is missing, dude in the wheelchair, his toes and his boots begin to move, and he starts to be able to walk, yeah. and the music swells as if into triumphant <laughs> Disney, Disney triumph music. And it's like, you're beginning to walk again. It is yeah. insane. It's absolutely it's insane. insane. No, and, and the thing is, it's like, this is probably one of the cases where... This is probably one of those cases, one of the most striking cases of a movie just losing the plot at a certain oh, point. Yeah. Because you get away from the melodrama, you get away from the the type of, you know, it's like, you know, small town band trying to make good in Hollywood and how they get corrupted and stuff like that. And then, of course, then you get to Z-Man's uh, house at the end, which almost has nothing to do with anything Nothing. Until uh, Casey calls them and yes. goes, oh, my God, help me. And it's like, he's going crazy. And Z-Man's going crazy. Z-Man's there are people dead here. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's one of the most glorious examples of a movie losing the plot in its third act that I, I think I've ever seen. And at one point, they even used the 20th Century Fox fanfare, which is hilarious in yes. and of itself. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a comment on so many things, but, you know, and what type of music does this band play? Because it feels like it goes through three or four different genres, I think. You know, sometimes Folk, it's... acid, rock. <laughs> <laughs> Psychedelic. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the 60s yeah. were a crazy time for experimentation and music, but come on. I mean, no way. I mean, very few plays, people experiment quite like this other than like Bowie. But, and and um, not, not in the same album. No, <laughs> no, not in the same album. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but no, I mean, you, I, I, I really enjoy watching this movie. It's like, it's, and the thing is, it's like, yeah, they're, for everything that's cringy about this movie and you know I, you know if if you're looking at it from a critical standpoint there's several things that you can point to where it's like eh the performances are not really that good 
Like, yeah, but that's what makes it good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because of the fact that they're, they're giving it what they can. They're giving this leaden dialogue, this melodrama with these awful performances. And some of this dialogue, I don't know how anybody could deliver it, even the best of actors. Oh, I mean, yeah. I, I would yeah. put this movie into the category of so bad it's good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's juvenile. It is. Oh, it's completely. Like, it's, it's, 110%. <laughs> it's, it's somebody who has probably never done an illicit drug in their life trying to write as if they're writing this in a gonzo style, as if they're, it's, it's, it feels like Ebert simultaneously imitating and making fun of certain type of experience and movie that was, you know, yeah, popular throughout the 50s and 60s. And because of that, it's, I don't think it's the black mark on his record. I think it's an interesting little side note. Mm-hmm. Um, now that he's been gone for a decade uh, plus, or just about a decade. Yeah, it's about uh, a decade. Yeah, I, I don't look at this as like, well, you, you couldn't critique movies. Look at the movie you wrote. Because I don't know that he actually sought to write a good movie. I think he sought to write I think a Gonzo, he, well, a Gonzo I, movie. And that's what this is. I, I think in a large degree, this is film criticism as film, filmmaking as film criticism. Yeah. That's I mean, it really, because, I mean, you know, it, it's very much, I think, to a certain extent, in its own way, it's doing what the French New Wave did in, in their film. I mean, it's, it's looking at film. You're the first person to ever compare Beyond the Valley of the Dolls to the French New Wave. I can't possibly be the first one, but I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, maybe you the first one on a podcast. But, yeah. but, and look, I'm not saying it's half as good as any of those movies, but what I'm saying is, I think it's made out of that same impulse of yeah. commenting on things that they see in films by making a film about those ideas. And yeah, I mean, yeah. that's where I'm getting. But um, no, I mean, it's, you know, and I, the thing is, it's like, I do think there's a large, you know, and we, we talked about Z-Man and how just outrageously offensive that, that portrayal and that turn is at the end to uh, to trans people, but um, at the same time, I mean, you can kind of feel like there's, for as much as this movie is kind of lampooning the uh, moralizing of fifties of fifties cinema, you can also tell that there's some progressive elements in this movie too. That probably oh, comes from Meyer and Ebert. Oh, for sure. I mean, there's tons of gay sex in this movie, or implied gay sex, either either out of desperation, quaalude addiction, <laughs> or gigolo situations, uh, or sometimes just mutual attraction. Yeah, yeah. And there's 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 definitely if it, if it's an insensitive to to picture of trans people, I think it's I don't think Ebert. I think it's a both and. I think it's an insensitive depiction of trans people through a modern lens. But I don't think Ebert is writing that character through the lens of that person as a trans person. No, I I, 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 I would agree with that assessment. Yeah. I mean, how many times? I mean, it's this it's it's a it's a very obtuse nerdy joke. Yeah. Z-Man only speaks in Shakespearean dialogue for the most part, especially by the end of the movie, right? Yeah. yeah. When the classical days of Shakespeare, men played women. Yeah, exactly. That's the joke. Mm-hmm. And then the joke is, it's a man playing a feminine figure. And it turns out the man has been a woman the whole time. So it's a reversal on 
the characters always talking in Shakespeare is a reversal on the old Shakespeare trope. That's what mm-hmm. it is. It's just so, I don't even say heady, but it's so, it's a dork's way of thinking. I don't know how yeah. to put it. It, it, just, it just so happens that it's, and it recontextualizes all of the whole movie. He's trying to seduce all these men. And you think, well, this is a flamboyantly gay character. And it recontextualizes that. It's like, it's actually not flamboyantly gay. It's a woman. Yeah. <laughs> and though, and if anything, it's a bit of a commentary on, if you, if you wanted to see it through that lens, you can see it through the lens of it's a commentary of what sort of sexual forwardness is acceptable for men versus women? What sort mm-hmm. of sexual forwardness do we expect out of gay folks versus straight women? Da, 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 da. So, no, um, it's a very good point. Yeah. Yeah. But I, 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 yeah, I, I don't think he's thinking in the terms that we're no he no I I don't think so either I I think it's just something where you look at it now and it's very very cringe in that way yes, very very yes. cringeworthy in that way but it in 1970 people were not necessarily thinking about it in that respect no he's just so. trying to shock the straights yeah and the irony is that Roger Ebert it was like mostly a straight narrow kind of guy so. Yeah. You know, so to a certain extent, it feels a little tryhardish, but that's also part of its charm. It's like mm-hmm. it's so, it's so ridiculous that it's like only somebody who had never participated in his life. Oh yeah, would write something like this. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, yeah. I I think you hit the nail on the head. It is written by somebody. It is a movie about sex, drugs, and rock and roll written by somebody who has no experience in any of those ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, in a way, it's almost like Reefer Madness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's great. It's great. So, <laughs> man, um, Reefer I, Madness is such an insane movie. <laughs> I, I would, I would, rec- I would recommend uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Yeah, I would too. I mean, our next film, our next film, I, I, I got issues. Oh yeah, there, there are so many issues with it. Um, and we'll, we'll go ahead and get into it. Is uh, 1974's Emmanuel the directorial debut of the immortally named Just Jaken. Although yep. I've always said Just Jacken, and like, let's face it, <laughs> it's how it should be pronounced. I, I don't it, give a it shit. That's how right. it should be pronounced. It should be pronounced Just Jacken. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. <laughs> okay, man. So this is maybe the most famous sexploitation film of all time, arguably. Yeah. Uh, it, it, this movie is so popular and so famous and was so commercially successful all around the world, in particular in Europe. Um, it, it's got much, almost it, as many spinoffs and sequels as the Amityville franchise. Well, that's what I was going to say, <laughs> because it's just a name, right? It's just a name. Yeah. It's, it's taken from a book that was written by a Thai French woman that later was determined that her husband wrote it, that they then also paired with Just Jacob for an erotic magazine called Emmanuel. And essentially, it's like um, it was a travel log of this woman's journey, this Thai French woman's journey, allegedly, you know, throughout Asia and Europe, and and the travelogue was spiced with sexual escapades. Yeah, and so it was like imagine penthouse forum letters in a, a travelogue style format, kind of a thing. It wasn't just about sex, but it was heavily sprinkled by sex. Right, and it was a very very popular book, and so then it got this movie adaptation. And because you can't really trademark the name Emmanuel, um, the Italians who were, we really wouldn't have mattered if it was copyrighted or trademarked. Italians don't care. 
Yeah. There's the black, the black Emmanuel series that basically takes this same premise, but adds horror to it for the, like Giallo basically. Um, and increasingly so as those movies go on and there, yeah, there's just, there's only, I think five actual mainline Emmanuel films. Yeah. I think that's about right. But there was eventually an Emmanuel TV series, which is actually Sylvia Cristal turns for that ended up being basically on Skinamax. (laughs) And she's in some of that, uh, but she's, uh, old, she's an older lady at that time, so she's recounting younger stories, so it's a different younger actress. And then everything else is a, basically a ripoff, imitating. It's using the Emmanuel name, but it's not an official Emmanuel movie. Yeah. And some of those, so there's there's like a hundred of these, but there are only five of them were actually legit. Yeah. It's, cra- it's crazy. It used to, movies used to be the Wild West not that long ago, even, especially mm-hmm. if they were independent or exploitation movies. So, yeah. Um, so the screenwriter here is, I think, her husband and her allegedly, and Jean Louis Richard. Um, it is just Jacob, which I've, I'm with you. I always want to say just Jackin. And what the sense that you get with this movie is okay. <clears throat> this is the first time I've seen this all the way through. <laughs> this movie. Could it be made today very easily, and it would be either one movie or two movies. You could yeah. either make this a lesbian period piece drama that everybody just dies over during Oscar season. All the real film critics who love real movies about adult, they just they love when when two lesbians or two women are attracted to each other, but they have to remain chaste. It can barely touch, and it culminates in a kiss. They love Merchant Ivory lesbian pictures. Portrait of a Lady on Fire, et cetera, et cetera. Every year we get about three of them. Yeah. Uh, so the people just love that. They love all of them. The end of this movie could be A24 or Neon Horror Picture. It could be an Ari Aster movie. Mm-hmm. It could be a uh, Ty West movie, for that matter. Yeah. Um, because I, th- I find the end of this movie... Um, not just what happens and what men do to Emmanuel, but also that last scene of her in that rattan chair painted up like a French whore, which is the idea. She goes from this innocent to this, and she's in this absolutely perverse, destructive relationship with this older man, even more so than her original marriage. Yeah. Uh, That's horror to Mm. me. I don't know if the movie knows that's a horror movie, but no, no. Her it, looking it, at herself it, in the we'll, mirror, we'll, and we'll we'll get to that. But oh. No, I I don't think. Well, it's going to be interesting because of the fact that uh, there. Did you take it that way? Um, the last not t- twenty minutes the, of this, we'll, we'll, it was we'll like a horror about, film. Oh yeah, we'll we'll talk about the last twenty minutes of this movie because I got issues with it. Um, yes. but uh, no, it's going to be interesting but, because this movie is supposed to be. We're supposed to get a new version of this story. From uh, Audrey Dewan, whom last whose last film was happening in 2021, and if if you haven't seen that, that is that is about a student who is facing an unwanted pregnancy in 1960s France, and mm-hmm. it's at a point where abortion is illegal. Absolutely harrowing and profound movie. I'm going to be very, if she, if this movie does end up getting made, if she does end up getting 
her version of Emmanuel made, I'm very curious, having rewatched it, what direction it's going in. Okay, and so a big that, part of it is that ending you're talking about. Well, let me, let, so let, let's take that first part where before it goes, in my opinion, into a horror movie. The basic idea, and I think this is really interesting, okay? So this is one of the most successful French films of all time. Yeah. Not, that's that's yeah. not an exaggeration. Yeah. It is one of the most successful French films of all time. And it certainly has an export to foreign markets. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, where it starts off as basically is modern, at that time, modern European sexual ethics that scandalized American sensibilities. Yeah. It's about op- open marriages, uh, sexually active women, women with sexual autonomy, bisexuality, female masturbation, things that America has always pretended didn't exist and that yeah. Europe has always known that has existed. And if what you wanted to say is that this is, if you took the plot and said, okay, this is about a younger woman who's married to an older man and basically is absconded with because he's a, a diplomat in Thailand and he takes this younger woman, uh, this younger European woman who's 19 and he's probably in his 40s, I would imagine. Yeah. And he takes her off to Thailand and he lives with these other ambassadors and emissaries and cultural attaches and whatnot. Uh, and they're, they're basically engaging in sex tourism and they're engaging in open marriages and because they're bored, they're sort of bored aristocrats. They're debaucherous aristocrats. All they do is get together and hate each other and snipe at each other and then drink and swap partners and whatnot. And there's this innocent who is put into that world. And the husband claims he wants her to have, I don't own you. Uh, This isn't the old patriarchal system of marriage. I'm free to do whatever I want. You're free to do whatever you want. And and there's the scene where at certain points she's begging him to just, can't our marriage be about something more than sex? Yeah. Can't can't there be a better, she uses the term absolute. Can't there be a bigger absolute than just pleasure? Can't there the the absolute be the things that we share in common and the things that we know about each other and so forth and so on? And he just dismisses her out of hand. He's like, pleasure is the only absolute. Mm. There are no other absolutes. There's nothing greater than pleasure. At that point, at that, that point, he's, he's, he comes off as a, like pinhead or something. He comes off as a sexual sadist in a way, right? He's like, I don't want to know you. I don't want to know anything about you. I just, I just want to use you for sex. And later, he's confronted by one of his friends who's like, well, because once Emmanuel does start to be free and she uh, falls in love or at least has a crush or is smitten with an older woman, his friend is like, well, you told her you wanted her to be free. But you just really wanted yourself to be able to be free and to be able to toss her aside whenever you didn't want her anymore without feeling guilty about it. Mm -hmm. If the movie had been about that, if the movie had been about the trend of older men marrying younger women for their sexuality, and this is a modern sensibility, this is a 2023 sensibility, and or how sexual freedom and sexual autonomy is often exploited Mm-hmm. which people are not fucking ready to have that conversation. No, no. But that's a, it's a very real thing. How free sex or like, oh, well, I don't own you. You're free to do whatever you want. Basically, non-monogamous relationships, how toxic 
those can be, then you have a you have a great drama because then when she falls in love with this woman, the woman does the same thing to her. Yeah. The woman uses her for sex and afterwards is like, I don't, she's like, I love you. She's like, you're young. Yeah. Eventually you'll realize you don't really love me. You don't even know who you are. You got to figure out who you are. I certainly don't love you. Get out of my house. And then she's heartbroken. Mm-hmm. That sequence, if, uh, you know, and I, I, I agree with you 100% on that. And I will say that sequence when she first really starts to have some agency in the movie and she goes up to B, she wants to talk to B, she wants to spend time with B and you see the jealousy on her husband's face. Because she is, for the first time, using her own agency to do what she wants. That is is easily the best part of the entire movie. That is the best stretch of the entire movie because it is getting to what you are talking about and what this movie ultimately would be better for if it was about that. The the problem, Brian, though, is the movie has to stop every 10 minutes like a porno. Yeah. To throw in a scene of some girl masturbating to a picture of Paul uh, Newman. Yeah. Paul Newman. (laughs) And that the, her age is very, that was like, she's, portrayed as a child yeah she's supposed to be younger than emmanuel emmanuel's only 19 so this is an underage girl ostensibly Mm -hmm. that we're watching masturbate to paul newman and that's not explicit her hands are just in her hands but still that made me uncomfortable yes and and what makes me uncomfortable about it is you could shoot all of this stuff in a matter of fact kind of way which really uh blue lagoon kind of does and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls kind of does. But the camera lens for this movie, the, the leering male gaze, it is so evident that despite however progressive or interesting the, the, some of the concepts of the first half to three quarters of this movie are, mm-hmm. the, movie is ultimate, the movie ultimately has a pornographic gaze. Yeah, it does. The, the fact that there's a same-sex scene where a woman is basically coming on to Emmanuel. Emmanuel's not interested in her at yeah. all. And then essentially by being forced by the ideas of her husband, ends up having sex with well, this woman or allowing the woman to have sex with her. At a racquetball uh, court. Yeah. In, in a racquetball court, by the way. Yeah, it um, seems to kind of enjoy it, but not really. Yeah. It isn't really into it. That's interesting to pursue. Like, what if you just want to be in a monogamous relationship, but you don't have autonomy in the relationship because you're so young and impressionable, and somebody is pushing you into exploring areas that you're not comfortable with because she doesn't know who she is. This this movie should ultimately be about a woman who has been pushed by her husband into having sexual interactions that are ultimately that are ultimately have less to do with her her desires than his and then all of a sudden she decides you know what i'm i'm going to go after my own passion my own pleasure and using her agency for the first time in her life 
and he can't help it. And you're right. That if the film had just gone about it in that way and explored what that dynamic would look like, that would be an interesting movie. But yes, well, instead, and, and the where the movie is, goes, it's like here, here's the thing I will say: Just Taken is not an untalented filmmaker. He, no, he's, no, he's no. A, he's a pervy filmmaker. He's not an untalented filmmaker. This is a halfway decently made movie. It just oh, has I've, a complete. It it just has a horrible perspective to it. That's the biggest problem with it. Yeah, yeah. is it, some of this like the scenes at the waterfall or some of the scenes. So a lot of the non-sex stuff is shot. First of all, they have beautiful locations, obviously in Thailand. And we have to, we have to say a couple of things. Uh, the movie is really, in my mind, is could really be bifurcated in almost two movies. That drama that's about a woman, a woman being given false sexual autonomy, and where the way that story should end is she gains actual autonomy, like yeah. you're saying whatever that looks like for her, right? Maybe that for her is being single. Maybe that for her is being in a monogamous relationship with a different person. Maybe that's whatever that is, but that, that story never gets finished here. Then there's to, to me, what I feel is a, a complete horror movie, which is the complete disassembling of Emmanuel as a person, which you could also, that could also be your end, right? It could go in that horrific direction of if men keep pushing her, this is what she's going to become. Is this woman is completely disassociated from her own, self that's horrific and but there's a message there and and there's a there's a message there but then there's this there's this other thing that we have to talk about that just jakin did not shoot all of this movie nor was certain scenes of this in the screenplay yeah they didn't feel that there was enough sex in this movie so more sex was added and in particular more scenes shot with (laughs) thai people yeah and (laughs) just jakin did not see, did not know that was in his movie until the premiere of the film at Cannes. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and that we, we, can't, we would be remiss to say that the biggest, despite the pervy look of it all, it, it's almost like a, a high, high sensibility, high art French film that devolves into porn or softcore porn, at the very least. Yeah. Every, every about 10 minutes. Yeah. And it goes back to being a French, basically just a French drama. Yeah. And then it ends very horrifically. It goes full on exploitation, horror film. Honestly, parts of it feel like a cannibal movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but then intercut into those things are horrific depictions of Thai people I, and I find it to be that's the most morally dubious thing about all of this because yeah, anytime sex is presented amongst the French, oh, it's so high-minded. It's mm-hmm. so they have these philosophical speeches about sexual attraction and pleasure and love and autonomy and the body and the this and that and the curves of a woman and woman on woman love it's the most natural thing blah 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 blah. then smash cut to any depiction of thai people it's almost always in the context of rape of a man raping a woman or a woman being sexually exploited by a french man and not from the perspective of look how horrible it is what the french have done to the thai people 
from the perspective of these people, these, they just exist to be our servants, they exist to be trafficked in, they exist for our sexual pleasure. It's pure sex tourism, down into the point where they basically go to a donkey show in Thailand, and there's this uh, scene where a woman has a cigarette and she's blowing smoke out of her vagina. Yeah. And that was filmed by, that was filmed by somebody completely different yeah. because they wanted more shocking, gratuitous sex in the movie. So almost all of the Thai stuff, almost all of it, it was shot by somebody else and just inserted into the movie. And it is horrific. It's horrible. It, it's, 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 it's atrocious. And it's, it, I mean, it needs to be repudiated. Yeah. Period. It's, 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 it's absolutely racist. awful. Yeah. Yeah. It's horrible. Mm-hmm. And I, I just think, you know, that again, the, the French or the, or the European versus Thai portrayals shows absolute sort of a mind of ethnic superiority. You know, when we're, uh, when, you know, when a man takes his wife to bed, despite her protests, it's because that's part of the game. It's, you know, it's yeah. part of, romancing your wife and giving her pleasure and you're experiencing the ultimate pleasure together, you know, and it's, but when it's two Thai servants and a man is chasing a screaming woman through the jungle to bed her down and to basically rape her. Well, that, well, that's what they do because they're animals. And that's what you feel like the movie is saying Mm -hmm. to you. And that's ridiculous. It is. Yeah. The biggest, most monstrous animals in this movie are the French bourgeoisie. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure the movie's aware of that. Oh, no, absolutely so, not. So no. much so that by the end, Emmanuel ends up in a relationship with an even older man who forces her, forces Thai people to Muay Thai box almost to the death to see who gets the right to sleep with her, which yeah. is not his to give away. No. He throws her into a situation of essentially gang rape. Yeah. But we're supposed to be okay with it because she seems to enjoy it. And she's, she's and you can that's tell, the ultimate, and, that's, that's her ultimate wild, sexual awakening. Yeah. And the wild thing is, especially with the gang rape, you, you get the, no, she clearly doesn't. Now, I mean, with, with the post boxing one, yeah, it's like they try to play it off that way. But even yes. then, it's, it's horrifically exploitive. And yes. I mean, you know, it, in a way, the only way, I I think that entire sequence with uh, Mario at the end is completely unjustifiable. And this this movie, if it if it had any respect for the type of story that it starts out as, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have gone in that direction anyway. But the one thing I will say about it, it is it it feels like. Because, I mean, her husband basically approves of him taking her. Yes. And so this is basically her husband punishing her for having some agency to her romantic life. Which we've already seen doesn't work out well for her because of the fact that she's emotionally hurt by it. Oh, she's devastated. And yeah, and yeah. I mean, you know, that's that's ultimately this film's point is that you know it's like don't take you know if you're if you're a woman don't take any agency in your sex life because otherwise you will get hurt. You have to do what your man says. It's essentially what this movie's talking about. 
Well, if well, this, like, his advice to her is like the only way to get over it is to get even, and the way that you get even is you go have sex with anybody, somebody who doesn't matter to you, and you give them pleasure, and that way, be wherever she is in the world, she'll feel it and she'll know that you've moved on without her. All this bizarre stuff. Yeah. And again, he psychologically is forcing this now entirely distressed person into having sex with somebody she's already rebuffed. Yeah. Who does not want to have a conventional sexual relationship with her. He yeah. wants to be a voyeur. And then by the end of the movie, lays down a rule to her that one cannot have pleasure outside of the partnership. Like it gets real bizarre. And he, she can't have any sexual pleasure unless he's present. And she can sleep with yeah. whoever she wants as long as he's there. Yeah. I and, mean, it's, and it, it, it's such a wildly puritanical look at sex but, for but, a movie but, that's filled with sex. But, but Brian, the editing, the way it's edited at the end, where you just see like these quick cuts of all of these menage trois that they're having, yeah. and Emmanuel sort of trapped in between him and this other another woman or him and another man it's like it goes complete psycho horror movie yeah. to me at the end i it just played and then her at the end just sort of staring off that thousand yard stare looking in the mirror mm-hmm. and just painting herself up as he's calling her for it and like she's got some voiceover of like maybe maybe one day uh like maybe mario is right and maybe maybe this is the key and maybe i'll be I'll, I'll be able to experience love again if I just do what Mario says. Yeah. That's the end of the movie. To me, again, I don't know if it's intentional, but it's like, I see that if you could recapitulate this movie and take all the Thai stuff out, all the, the real gratuitous stuff, have commentary on the fact that the French are sexually exploiting young Thai people, mm-hmm. and 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 have commentary on these libertine ideals that are supposed to equal ultimate pleasure and happiness can be another system of control and destruction, just as, just as much as puritanical sexuality can. Um, I, I, again, then it wouldn't, it's a more modern sensibility sort of film and it's more of a drama horror movie of some kind as psychosexual dramedy, a dramedy, but psychosexual drama horror film. But that's what I think this is. I yeah. think whether they know it or not, I think what they've made is a movie that starts off like a penthouse, a high-minded penthouse letter of like, oh, I went to a foreign land and I fell in love with a woman and we yeah. had sex under the waterfall and, and you're sitting there reading a body letter about two women having sex and like, ooh, how titillating. Um, and then it just turns into me an absolute, yeah, an absolute horror film. Mm-hmm. And I really, honestly, um, ex- talking about it is we've been more explicit than the movie necessarily is because when you say out loud what happens in the movie, it sounds more explicit than it actually is presented in the movie. Yeah, it's no, I mean, but it's, the, it's, the, it's again done. the gaze, <laughs> the directorial gaze of this film yeah. is perverse. Mm-hmm. And I, I I will never revisit this movie again. I think it's a, I, I think it's a morally deplorable film. Yeah. And I, I think I, this, if you're going to remake it, I think you got to have a, a female director take this head on. Because again, as we've said ad nauseum, some of the central ideas in the movie 
they're just it's just a drama it's just a yeah. drama yeah. that we've seen before so you could do that you could tell a captivating story it's just you're constantly feeling no pun intended like like some guy somewhere is just inserting his own yeah lust into the film and it's supposed to make me feel licentious and like ooh and it just does it makes me feel really gross in a way that beyond the valley of the dolls never did so oh yeah no absolutely gross um you know, and, and the thing is, it's like, look, this is, this is, Emmanuel, for the most part, is basically ground zero for, like, Red Shoe Diaries and shit like that. Bingo. It's I mean, it is. It's the original that's, Skinamax. Yeah, it, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Um, but, you know, I mean, that's, that's why I'm so curious about the remake or the new adaptation of it, because it is a female director. So, it... And the way that she did happening, which I think is on, it might be on Hulu, but it might be on one of the streamers if you get a chance to watch it. It's a really harrowing film, but it's well worth checking out, especially uh, especially in a uh, post-Roe v. Wade world. Wade world. Um, yeah. It's it's well worth checking out. Um, but yeah, that's that's why I'm that's why I'm curious about if. If she gets to make that movie, what is it going to look like? How different is it going to be compared to what we see here? Because, yeah, I'm I'm with you. It's like I I can't imagine ever rewatching this. And the thing is, it's like the the filmmaking is what the filmmaking is. I mean, it it it's the French stuff is at least quote unquote tastefully done. But the yes. thing is, the per- perspective of the movie is just so fucked, and that's yes. that's the biggest. That's, that's problem the problem. That's the biggest problem with the movie is the perspective of it is fucked. Yeah. <laughs> There's no other way to put it. What's interesting though is this movie was so popular across the world that it, for a brief window of time, made Sylvia Cristel, um kind of like the ultimate sex, sex object in movies. Yeah. And then, and it made her a star. Mm-hmm. And she would end up being cast in Hollywood films because of this. I think she was Danish or Dutch or something like that. Um, but she stars in a movie that is probably equally as problematic, but not as equally explicit. And I think it's, what is it? Private Lessons? Yeah. Yeah. Which is a 1980... 82, I think. 81, 82. Yeah movie about she is a maid for a rich family a housekeeper and she is <laughs> blackmailed by Howard Hessman of all people <laughs> who is the family <laughs> chauffeur chauffeur yeah. to seduce the family's 15 year old boy mm-hmm. 15 year old son and the actor they have playing him looks all of about 12 years old <laughs> yeah and you say, okay, well, that's really weird, and that would be problematic enough. But this is a mainstream Hollywood release, by the way. Yeah, yeah. It's in the 80s, and it's like, well, that's problematic. Yeah, it's problematic, but just wait for it. <laughs> then the movie becomes a June-September romance between her and this boy, where as, they, as it, the nudity and the sexual contact escalates, they end up falling in love with each other. Yeah. And it's played as like you. This is this is a romance for the ages. It's played like Harold and Maude or something like that. 
And it's so strange. It's the mm-hmm. strangest, most perverse concept. And the tagline for the movie on the original poster is, this should happen to you. It's a little boy on a stack of books because he's too short kissing grown woman, Sylvia Cristal. And it's, this should happen to you. Yeah. What should happen? I should be a 15 year old boy who is sexually seduced by an older woman. Is that what you're saying that this should happen to me? And see that this goes into this idea, this old school idea of, and and this movie kind of has it, but obviously from a different culture, it's a different sensibility, but it's like, oh, well, you see, women are just as libidinous as men. And so if you put a woman in the right conditions, she can be as just as sexually free and sexually uh, uh, debaucherous as a man and watch Emmanuel, watch this, Young woman, it was parodied by Seinfeld's Rochelle Rochelle, a young woman's yeah, yeah. Uh, sexual journey from Milan de Mintz. Watch this woman's sexual journey as she learns about masturbation and group sex and menage trois and saying uh, uh, scissoring or whatever. And isn't that all? Look at that. But it misses the fact that this woman is being forced to do all these things. Yeah. At the very least, psychologically, sometimes literally forced. Mm-hmm. There's no agency. And with this other movie we put her in, we make her this, what's every boy's fantasy to be seduced by a, a a older woman who's going to teach him the ropes sexually. It's like, no, that's statutory rape. Mm -hmm. That's sexual assault. Yeah. So as much as I want to kind of thumb my nose at the French and go, at least just Jacob, what the fuck is wrong with you? (laughs) You know, you, what, why, why did you make this movie? Why didn't you? Why didn't you take the story that's obviously here and bring it to a conclusion? Or why? Why is there no self awareness? All this stuff. There's is equal amount as. And by, by the way, Private Lessons is not a exploitation film. It's a comedy. It's a family <laughs> comedy. So then you go to America, and we're just as fucked up, just in a different way. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Hmm. So, yeah, Sylvia Cristal never, I don't think she ever really got beyond sort of playing no, the No, I, I, I don't think, no, I don't think she ever did, too. But she was a well-known figure for a long time. Sort yeah. of like, uh, uh, oh, what's the one before her that Bill Murray name checks in? Um, Lori Antonelli. Mm. You know, the, 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 he name checks her in Ghostbusters 2. He says, I've got some Lori Antonelli tapes. And basically it's just... You know, she was just a big-breasted European woman. <laughs> and that was the appeal of her movies. I think what's most interesting is that um, Sylvia Christelle, I understand casting her as Emmanuel as the virginal, innocent, I don't know anything about the world, let alone sex. Um, and maybe that's the entire appeal of her. But then when Hollywood gets their hands on her, no pun intended, and it's like, this is the sexiest woman of the 20th century, that doesn't make sense to me. And yeah. beauty standards are different or whatever, but she's not a traditionally in the world of the Raquel Welches and Bo Derricks and, you know, sort of the old stereotype for the, the sexual, like the sexual male fantasy, um, basically up until the eighties. And then now it's 
made a resurgence, but it was the voluptuous woman. Yeah. It was the woman with curves. It was Marilyn Monroe. That was the American sex pot figure. And this is a very not that sort of person. This is no, a very no. a very slight woman with a very slight frame. Um, very ethnically ambiguous. <laughs> like, what country? <laughs> yeah. Is she supposed to be French in this movie? I don't know. She, definitely, you know. But again, I think she's Danish or something. Yeah, Dutch. I think that 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 sounds right. That that definitely sounds right. But well, Americans don't care. She's just broadly European, you know. Yeah, she's got some kind of accent. So that makes exotic. her exotic. Yeah, yeah, yeah yes. That's yes. that's the appeal. That's, well, that's, that's what I was appeal. that's what I was getting right. at. That's uh, that's the other problem with this in the twenty twenty three is that Sylvia Christel and a lot of these movies, including the American ones, many of which were hits, by the way, uh, she's otherized. Yeah. She's sexually attractive because she's exotic. Well, what makes her exotic? Well, it's that she's European, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, and Americans, especially <laughs> at that time, had this sensibility that Europeans were more sexually advanced and, and aware and knew, knew the depths of pleasure uh, more than us. And so that's, yeah, it's really, honestly, maybe somebody needs to follow up and do a documentary or video essay on Sylvia Christel because... I wonder what her attitudes, uh, she's not with us anymore, but I wonder what her attitudes about all this were. I wonder if we know, because she kind of is like Emmanuel. She's plucked out of nowhere. She's turned into this ultimate perverse European sex fantasy. Yeah. Is sold to America as the ultimate sex doll, essentially. She's so naive and yet so willing. Like, that's the feel that you get. And so young, which, boy, that's oof. Yeah, they, they constantly refer to her as the nymphette and the kiddo and the child, the child. I'm like, I don't really want to watch an erotic film where we keep referring to the main sexually active character as a child. Well, I mean, that's the Lolita effect, though. I mean, that's, that's really the Lolita effect, though. I it think. 100% In, is. And that's, know, that, I, that, is, that is the entire, um, whatever you want to call it, the entire garment that gets placed on the shoulders of tiny, tiny nine-year-old Brooke Shields. Yeah. And where, yeah, oh, gonna I was going to say, this is, you know, this is a great segue to yep. our final film, which is Blue Lagoon, because of the fact that one of the things that, one of the things that I really did not become aware of until I was older and I was an adult is, the the hypersexualization of Brooke Shields when she was a teenager. And Preteen. Yeah. I mean she was yeah. she was, I think, what, twelve when pre baby came out? Eleven and she's 15 she filmed it. in this. She was a, she was eleven years old and she's yeah. more she's well, we gotta start there. Okay, so there's a documentary, it's on Hulu right now called Pretty Baby. It's two parts. It's they saw a docu series, but it's really a it's basically two one hour, so it's basically one docu. Yeah, and uh, it's a an hour and ten minutes, maybe an hour and ten minutes, about two two twenty. And it's her sort of reckoning with her mom and reckoning with mostly recognized reckoning with, especially at that time, but not limited to that time, the oversexualization of prepubescent and pubescent girls. Mm -hmm. And the movie makes the argument, without getting too far into it, that when the women's liberation movement happened and older women started to be depicted in film and television as having sexual autonomy, 
and in society actually started to have some autonomy. The male gaze moved towards sexualizing young women because they were minors and they could not have autonomy. And it makes an incredible case because when you look at the archived interviews with a seven, eight, nine-year-old Brooke Shields and the sexual questions and the sexual tinge of the questions that she's asked and mostly male reporters on ABC, NBC, this is mainstream television. It is horrendous. And the, the newspaper headlines about her uh, of, of being, you know, uh, the world's sexiest child and like stuff, like literally words that if you put it together, you, you just recoil because we never put those words together as bluntly as they did without any sense of irony or without any critique. Eventually it would build towards a critique, mostly due to Louis Maul's Pretty Baby, which I'm so grateful we're not covering here which is a movie about a child prostitute whose virginity is sold away to an older man. And yet she's actually in love with a different older man who's like a doctor or something who frequents this bordello. And Brooke Shields was 11 years old and appears genuinely nude in the film. Mm -hmm. This film, um, it's a lot of camera trickery and any real nudity that you see in the film is her 29-year-old stunt double. Yeah. So the movie sort of has this reputation. This Blue Lagoon has the movie that has a reputation. This is the movie where you see an underage Brooke Shields naked. It's not true. Yeah. That's pretty baby. This movie is her stunt double. And she makes that very clear. And actually, ironically, Brooke herself doesn't really hold this move, this movie in particular, in total disregard. What her problem with this movie is, the director, uh, Randall Kleiser, who directed Flight of the Navigator in Greece, of all things, probably most famous for Greece, yeah. sold the movie in the press as, and the studio sold the movie as. You Essentially, you will see Brooke Shields' sexual awakening and loss of virginity, and the term he used, for real, on screen. Yeah. It's less about the movie for her, at least as far as the documentary presents it. Mm-hmm. It's how the movie was marketed. Yeah. Because she was famously um, an abstinent person. Mm. Um, well, well into her college years. So she always felt at odds as being presented as this like sexual ingenue, as somebody who was not comfortable with her own sexuality and was not practicing sex, had never had sex before. Her first kiss in her life was as an 11-year-old child with a man in his 30s on set of pretty baby. That's horrendous. It's awful. It's atrocious. And Now, so I recommend Pretty Baby to everybody. In, 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 no, I mean the documentary, not the Right, film. right, right. I, I still haven't watched it, but I mean, I, I do want in, to watch in it. In concert with this conversation. Yeah. Because it has a lot to say. Now, her two teenage daughters absolutely wholesale reject Blue Lagoon and all of them, basically all of these hypersexualized movies or movies that were at least marketed as being hypersexualized mm-hmm. um, that she made. She made three or four of them in a row before she was even 18, 17. Um, it's, it's because their, their entire argument is 
Well, your mother consented to you taking your top off. You didn't. Your mother consented to you, consented to you being sexually depicted in such a way, but you didn't. What's interesting about Blue Lagoon is Blue Lagoon was marketed towards teenagers, teenage female fans in particular of Brooke Shields, yeah. who at that point was arguably one of the 10 most famous people in the world. Um, as essentially this is a sensitive portrayal of a woman's coming of age of two teens, first love, first sexual dalliances, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And it is an adaptation of a much older novel. And it's sort of a Swiss family Robinson sort of film yeah, or, or story, but the two, two characters end up getting three, but one of them dies. The three characters get washed ashore or two children who do not in the novel nor in this movie need to be cousins. No. There's no reason why they need to be. And that's also part of the way the movie was marketed on. I was like, oh, but it's, it's, you're really going to see Brooke Shields lose her virginity on screen, which is horrendous. And also they're cousins. You're going to see cousins have sex. That's horrendous. Um, But the movie itself, outside of a few of those scenes, the entire time feels like a Disney teen movie from this era or oh, yeah. slightly before. Honestly, some of the sensibilities, especially with like the pirates or whatever you want to call them and the boats, the this yeah. and that kit from Knight Rider, AKA Mr. Feeney. Uh, <laughs> um, all that feels almost, you're really, I'm crazy, but it felt dialogue and score wise to tone wise. It felt like Don Bluth. I I can definitely see that. I mean, I and you're you're right about the Disney the Disney-fied aspect of this. I mean, you know, it's like if it wasn't for ideally. if it wasn't for the nudity, you could see this easily being rated PG. Oh it's yeah, so it's a very chaste movie. It's so tame. It is ridiculous yes. how tame this movie is. I mean, the nudity, such as it is, is very matter of fact because. Hey, guess what? They're stranded on an island. They don't have their suitcases with them, so it's like, of course, they're not gonna have, are going to be. Well, they also got stranded clothes. at like they got um, stranded at like eight years old or whatever. Yeah, and exactly. Like six, Fifteen, sixteen. Yeah, they've outgrown their. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, it's it's. There's more male. The uh, I forget the name of the Chris Atkins. Yeah, Christopher so you, Atkins. Yeah, there's more. And he was he was of a. I think he was like 17 or 18 when the. It was 18. Movie, yeah. When they shot 15. the film, so I mean he yeah. he could do his own new. He did do his own nudity, but correct. Um, a lot of the nudity yeah. of um, the, of of Brooke Shields' character is if most of it is below the neck, so you never see Brooke Shields' face because yeah. it's not her. And or it's at a distance, like her jumping into a pool or something, and she's yeah. nude. That's all. That's also not her. You can very easily tell because the woman jumps in and she immediately pops up close to the camera because yeah. it's two different things. Uh, I mean, the big thing is that you're going to see she's almost like Ariel from The Little Mermaid. Her hair is constantly draped over her chest. Yeah, but they yeah. they try to do a good job of shooting her from the the ab- above the nipple base. Yeah, they do everything <laughs> in their power not to show Brooke Shields actually naked. The the thing that I kept coming back to was it was um the pastoral sequence in Fantasia where you have the where when one of the questions that the animators had to ask themselves during that was how do you do the centaurs and how do you do the centaurettes? How do you 
how do you portray the breasts and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's it's kind of in in that same vein. But um The biggest yeah. the, again though, I, I I have to go with the person who was in the movie and my best understanding of what their objections to it are today, right? Yeah. Because it's it's her experience, it's not mine. Yeah. I can't ask, I don't know what Sylvia Christel's feelings are about Emmanuel, which is why I would like to know. But in this case, we have a sense to some degree of Brooke Shields, which is she got a lot of feedback from a lot of teenagers and young girls, especially who were coming into puberty and whatnot, what whatnot. And the movie was sort of almost like a rite of passage film. It was a film that moms yeah. took their daughters to. I know that sounds odd, but they, they talk about it. They show the archival footage in the documentary of like, this is your mom. Your mom took you out for the day and took you to the movie and watched a new Brooke Shields movie because it is sort of Disney-fied and chaste and idyllic. Then you have the talk. Yeah. You know, are you sexually active? Um, the fact of the matter is this movie would, would not be made today, should not be made today. No. Um, and it was especially marketed to teen boys, and let's be very real, adult men. Yeah. As, you know, that sexy little girl, that sexy little teen girl from those Calvin Klein ads, which were, you go look at some of those Calvin Klein ads. Oh, my God. Yeah. Horrendous. The amount of the positioning she's in, the crotch forward, nothing gets between me and my Calvins, which means I'm not wearing underwear. Yeah. And it's just her entire crotch spread open to the camera. It's... it. The Calvin Klein ads are worse than anything you'll see in this movie. Mm-hmm. And she's fully clothed. Yeah. And Calvin Klein's response when he was confronted was, what can I say? I'm a bad boy. She's 14. She's 12 in some of those. Yeah. It's, or the, the, the documentary is not rated because there is so much child sexualization and child nudity in it. Yeah. They do censor the nudity from Pretty Baby, thank God. Mm-hmm. Because she's... A, a 10-year-old, 11-year-old little girl. Mm-hmm. And when you realize, like, we, as American society, we've done this not just to Brooke Shields. She's probably, because she was such a huge star in a time when that really meant something. But it really, really opens your eyes, even more so if you're, like, my eyes are already open to these things. But it even more so opened my eyes to just what a distorted, perverted sense of entitlement. Yeah male directors, producers have towards the real bodies and sexuality of actresses in particular and young actresses, especially. Well, and, and, and men in general too, because I mean, men you know, in general, I, yes. I, I remember, you know, I remember in the, uh, in the late nineties, early two thousands, you, you had email, you had websites devoted to the, the, uh, the countdown clock for like oh the Olsen twins. Oh, and Britney Spears just, and Lindsay Lohan. Uh, and it's despicable. Right. It's absolutely despicable. Right. Yeah. No, yeah, you're you're exactly right. And it's it's so you have to address all that up front about Blue Lagoon. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so the only thing I would say is go watch Brooke Shields and find interviews and get her opinion on it. Let's take all of that and put that all aside. That this movie is essentially marketed towards teen girls as a sensitive portrayal. Go to your mom, learn about sex and the birth of the bees, and have the talk. And it was marketed towards adult men as watch 
Brooke Shields be de- deflowered. Yeah. Uh, which is horrendous. Let's put that aside. The movie, as a movie, is horrendously boring. It is. Yeah. It's it's deeply silly. I mean, I'll admit, it's like, I, I think if it truly had been interested in the coming-of-age aspect of Brooke Shields' character in this movie, of her getting her first period, which we, you know, we we get the implication of. And, you know, all of that aspect of it, and the fact that Richard, the Christopher Atkins character, is just kind of oblivious. I, I do kind of enjoy that uh, aspect because it, it gets teenage guys about girls completely right, where it's like, oh, what the hell is, what the hell are you doing? But at the same time, if you look at it, it's looked entirely through the perspective of, you know, when she gets pregnant in the movie. You know, it's like, when are you going to be able to do it? And it's like, I don't know. And it's, it's, it's you know, there there's elements in that where if you really were interested in doing a story about that, are there. Like, same, same kind of thing that we were talking about with Emmanuel. Yeah. But it's, but yeah, like you said, it's just such a boring movie. Just in I mean, the, va- the vast majority of this movie is not about nudity or them, two cousins falling in love on no, a deserted island. No. It's about them, like, picking berries and sitting around in the sand and trying to, re- basically trying to remember remnants of, since they were so young when they got washed ashore. Yeah. Now, lose- losing memories of the civilized world and kind of trying to they're not quite Lord of the Flies feral children. No. Well they should be. Well they should be. But they're 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 sort of cave people. I don't you know I like I don't know how to describe it, but it's sort of like it's supposed to be funny that they speak with these malapropisms and they get certain terminology wrong and that mm-hmm. they're they're like they're growing up, but because they, they, they're not a part of civilization anymore, they're still very childlike in their yeah. mentality, and they're sort of simulating what they re- kind of sort of remember adults used to be like. Yeah. Well, the thing, the thing that struck me, struck me about watching this is you, you've, got this, uh, you've, you've got this picture show, this slideshow of uh, basically a wedding and stuff like that, a married couple and stuff like that. It feels it's a human like development. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they're basically, they're basically taking their cues off of that, in a large yes. degree. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's so much. I mean, it, it's not it's not the same thing as Castaway, but it's kind of the same thing as Castaway, where it's like you, they're basically just, at, they're trying to adapt to being on their own, and what does that look like, and. You know, you you see this you see this hut that they put together with is the most extravagant hut I think anybody's ever put together. It's Gilligan Islands. Movie. It's Gilligan's yeah. Island level of technology <laughs> they almost have. Like you expect them to basically have like electricity via coconuts, like on Gilligan's Island. It's yeah, pretty ridiculous. Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, you know, well, and- here's the here's the thing about this movie. The movie wants to have it all ways, right? Yeah. The movie doesn't want to realistically depict what it would be like for two small children to wash 
ashore. No, no, uh, not at all. A mostly deserted <laughs> island. And assuming they survive, deal with the psychological ramifications and the the feralness that you would have. They don't want to go dark with it. No, they this also is a fantasy. Want, but they also want to be able to have indigenous people be savages yeah. and they'd be offering human sacrifices and show human guts strewn on an altar. But then they also want to have Brooke Shields confuse that pagan deity with God. Yeah. And like they they want it to be like this Disney fied, Disney teen adventure movie where no adventure ever really happens. Mm-hmm. But it's also sexual enough that grown men can leer at it. Yeah. But it's also very very much like a movie made in with with what a Adult men think fourteen-year-old girls want, which is just like romance with a dreamy boy. Yeah, well, but it just so happens that boy is a, is her cousin. Like this doesn't make any sense. Well, like well, that could have done a teen. <laughs> you could have done a teen romance movie here, Brian. Yeah, that's what you want to do. Where where they want they're older. They wash ashore when they're older, and they go from being friends to as they go through puberty, they go from being. Brother, sister, tight, not literally by blood, yeah. God help. Yeah. But, you know, fighting, friends, like each other, whatever, whatever, to liking, liking each other. And what do we do with these feelings? And he's a dreamy boy and she's a dreamy girl. And, and make it a, a, a more of that, like, sort of Disney teen movie. You could do that version and have some adventure, have some pirates involved, some swashbuckling or whatever, and you can do that movie. Yeah. Which is yeah, which is not this movie at all. And no, I mean even it's sort of this kind of like oh, but isn't he dreamy? And I got funny feelings about him. But the thing is, it's like well, it's your cousin. And even at the end, you don't really get the feeling that these three are a family in terms of mother, father, child. No, no. There's no romance between them at all. It's just they're well, they the have only no chemistry. Op- they're the only option. I mean that's yeah. that's basically what you're looking at, and um, you it's, know. A, it's essentially a two-hour movie where we're watching people give very dull performances of very dull material. Yeah, who are supposed to be slowly transitioning from a childlike relationship to each other to a adult romantic family relationship with each other, and you don't and feel it. And you don't feel any of no. it, and then no. then it's lurid and disgusting and off-putting because one of them is an actual child and the and the premise is they're related they're cousins their yeah. first cousin none of that's needed no that's necessary no no and, and 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 are they dead at the end presumably they're dead well allegedly they're not according to somebody who finds them they're not but you know that's but, but, that's but, the other wild thing about this there's no real ending to this movie. No. There's no real ending to this movie. It's like, so you're trying to leave us on a happy note of, oh, they've been rescued, but you also get the impression that, like you said, maybe they're dead. Well, so yeah, so we should. Come in and it's like, so, yeah, you have so, somebody come in and say, oh, no, I can, you can, they're, they're, they're just sleeping. Mr. Feeney, Mr. Feeney, <laughs> A.K.A. Kit from Knight Rider uh, is is Christopher Atkins' father. Yeah. And um, Brooke Shields' parents were missionaries who were killed in the mission field. 
So she's living with them now. And they've gone off to heaven. And one day she'll join them in heaven. Yeah. And they end up having a fire. They have these basically pirates that are trafficking them around. This is like turn of the century. And the ship explodes. And one of the scallywags, one of the pirates, Pappy or whatever his name is, and uh, he, he grabs the two children to rescue them and puts them in a rescue boat. There's smoke and fog and whatnot from this horrible fire and explosion of the ship because all the gunpowder goes up. And so Mr. Feeney's boat and the kids' boat get separated. This is, this is where it totally feels like Don Bluth. Yeah. And the kids are washed ashore with this pirate guy. And in, in the span of about 24 hours or a week or maybe a month at most, he teaches them everything they need to know to survive <laughs> on this island. Yeah. How to thatch roofs, how to catch fish, how to do this, how to do that. And they've washed ashore with some things. You know, there's mostly like some of his stuff, which includes like, bot, like weird little uh, stereoscopic porn and photos of families and whatnot. It's odd. Yeah. Um, and he ends up getting really drunk on some rum they find because they find other people have washed ashore. They died there and they maybe implications, maybe they were sacrificed by the natives. And so he says, don't ever go to the other side of the island. You have to stay on this side of the island. Don't ever go over there. Promise me you'll never go over there. And they seemingly subsist on papaya and bananas. Where they get water from, I have no idea. Fresh water. I guess the waterfall, I guess you Yeah, I, I, think that's, I, I think that's it. And the Blue Lagoon. They get the, the water rain. from the Blue Lagoon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, he ends up dying, drowning, drunk on a rum barrel, whatever. They find his body as children, slight, slightly older children, and they're horrified by it. And so they pick up camp and they move. And then we painfully watch as week after week, day after day, year after year, they never seemingly age, but they're getting older. Yeah. And eventually they, they discover there are people on the island. That comes into play none whatsoever. Really. Yeah. Um, they're all who are cannibals. and Oh, it's horrendous. And then at some point, Brick Shields gets pregnant through incest. Yeah. And they have a baby, and the baby eats these berries that when they first landed, Brooke Shields was going to eat these berries. And Pappy, or again, whatever his name yeah. is, the, the pirate is like, Patty, Patty is his name. Patty's like, don't eat those. Those are go to sleep and never wake up berries. So don't ever eat those unless you want to go to sleep and never wake up. So they're not watching their kid whatsoever. And the kid yeah. wanders into the berry patch and eats, eat, grabs a bunch of berries, jumps into a boat. It's so convoluted. Mm -hmm. Brooke Shills then jumps into the boat after her. Boat starts drifting off. The kid loses one oar. Brooke Shields is trying to get the oar with the other oar. She loses that oar. Yeah. Christopher Atkins has to drop his bananas, jump into the water to swim after him. Yeah. A shark comes. He's going to eat Christopher Atkins. He beats up the shark. They get in the boat, but they don't have any oars. They're adrift at sea, and then they realize their baby has eaten these never-wake-up berries. And there's just enough left for the parents to kill themselves as well because they don't want to, they're going to die anyways at sea and the baby's dead in the boat with them. And now remember this whole movie 
Everything I've just said is being presented to you with a Disney sheen yeah. all over it. Yeah. A it, Disney live action sheen. This is the softest, most family friendly, incestuous by expectation film. You by ever far, watch. the most risque aspect of this are the tattoos that the the cook has. Yes. On yes. on his on his boobs and on yes. his belly. Holy yes. shit. I, that is the most, is the craziest damn tattoos I've ever seen <laughs> in a movie. <laughs> and so then it just so happens at the same time they're adrift at sea, Mr. Feeney, who's already spotted them once, but is like, yeah. they were covered in mud. So clearly so, those could, they couldn't be his kids. Yeah, exactly. That's what he says. Well, that couldn't be them. Why would, <laughs> why couldn't it be them? Then, he sees a little uh, the dinghy or whatever from a ship that they're in. He's like, and, and, and ostensibly like 10 years have passed. What, you know, and he's just been looking for them for 10 years. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. But he's like, let's go to that boat. So they row out to the boat. They find the whole family snuggled together in the bottom of this little dinghy, this little rat, like a, a little rowboat. And they're all, they all look dead. Yeah. Yeah, they do. And he goes, oh, my God, are they dead? And one of the pirates is like, no, sir, they're just sleeping. And is that a metaphor that he doesn't? What is it? And if so, what is that a metaphor for? No, thematically, there, there's absolutely nothing of interest in this movie. It's, it's just played, it's, No, but it's played with such whimsy. It's played with such, like... There's, like that is a euphemism that's like heartfelt for us to feel. There, I don't know what it's supposed to be saying. Are they dead or are they alive? There's there's literally no thematic point to this movie whatsoever. There's none. There's, there's no point. There's, there's no story. This is such. Uh, I mean, and and the thing is, it's like you were you were talking about the you know you were talking about the uh, you know selling the movie on sex appeal and stuff like that, which. I mean, let's be honest, you're just selling it on nudity. And I, I think that's that's again, it goes we're we're talking about some of these puritanical things that play into the way nudity and sex is considered in society. And I mean, you know, this is one of those movies where, you know, people get the impression that just because there's nudity in a movie, it's sexual. That yes. automatically makes the movie sexual. Which is not the case at all. Now, granted, yeah, there are there are moments where it is intended to be sexual in this movie, and it's still atrocious because of the fact that you're talking about teenagers. Um, but at the same time, I mean, you're you're it it goes to this. That's why this ended up, even though on on the surface, Blue Lagoon doesn't seem like it makes sense in the conversation of this it really does because of the fact that you know in each of these movies we're looking at the ways that sex is portrayed in yes. in movies and i love the fact that two of these are hollywood films and then we've got one foreign film yes. that was basically an international hit because of the fact that you know we we could have talked about we could have talked about far bigger movies than this. We could have talked about Basic Instinct, Wild Things. We could have talked about Bolero, and that would have been a completely different. We could talk about Porky's for God's sakes. Yeah, we could have talked about Porky's. We could have talked about Private Lessons. 
And yes. I mean, we could have talked about this from so many different angles. And, you know, but I love that we're talking about these it with in regards to these movies. Because each of because the sexuality and the nudity in this in each of these movies plays a very different purpose. Yes. And I I love that this is such a wide range of discussions. And yeah, I mean the the fact that Blue Lagoon is so toothless in so many ways as a story being told as a as as sexual exploitation as so many different things is such a toothless film. Like it really doesn't have anything of value to say in any of these respects. No, the only thing it has to say is what? What? the only thing that it has to say is um Here's Brooke Shields' body double. Yeah. You could you could pretend that you're looking at naked Brooke Shields. Yeah. At 15, which is despicable. Yeah. And they're, they're, it's like, what 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 do you market this movie on? There is there's no action. There's nothing happens. There are really no threats. There's no there's no plot. There's really no story. No. There's no you know again. If you want to make a coming-of-age romance film about two teens trapped in a deserted island, you know, there's a story to be told there, but you tell it with a, a overage actors, which is Hollywood's always done. Every movie with teenagers, is, they're always 40 years old. Yeah. You just have 20-year-olds be in the movie. But the, the, the movie was made because it was an opportunity to sexualize the most famous pretty girl in the world at that time, which is Brooke Shields. They didn't give two shits whatsoever about her or how old she was or what it meant to sexualize somebody so young that's yeah. it that's the bottom line and and, and then it, the movie itself is absolutely like you said toothless pointless boring come and look at pretty two pretty actors in a pretty location that's it that's all the movie has to offer you the, the most that's it. The most fascinating thing about the filmmaking in this movie is just how batshit insane Basil Palidoris' score is. And I, I mean, was wondering when you're going to drop that. Go ahead. Go oh ahead. my god! I mean, you know, it's like there, there, there's Sometimes there's scores that I'll latch on to that really, really vibe with me for some reason. Like Tangerine Dream's score for Sorcerer was the same way a couple of years ago. Peter Gabriel's yeah. score for Birdie. I, I kind of feel like Paolo Doris's score for this one is the new one, just because of how absolutely insane it is. And there are times where it's like, okay, it kind of fits in with the film. It kind of fits in with what it's trying to do. But there are other times where it just goes off on its own into, what 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 the hell are you doing? It's like, are you just as bored with the story as we are? And you're just like, you know what? I'm just gonna go to town on this. I'm I'm just gonna go to town. You know, and and that's fine. You you you're not gonna reject my score because I'm Basil Palador crying out loud. It is <laughs> he is scoring the movie that people thought they were making, not the yeah. movie that's on the screen. Yeah. It it is this sweeping sentimental at times epic yeah sweet uh classic hollywood score and it is being applied 
to two pretty things in a pretty place that's what this movie comes down to is well isn't christopher atkins isn't he pretty yeah Eh. (laughs) but brick shields isn't she pretty yeah Yeah. (laughs) well isn't this island pretty yeah fiji's very beautiful Mm -hmm. yes isn't that water beautiful yeah it is that's it that's all the movie has and isn't it funny that they say those words wrong no you know, isn't it, isn't it funny that they don't know what a period is and he thinks she's got a wound? Isn't that funny? No. Yeah, no. Yeah, it's just, it's, 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 no. Just, it's, 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 it's one of those things where it's like, oh my God. I mean, you, you basically wrote these to, with abs, I mean, that's, that's, that's something where it's like, if I'm sure the book, the written story, I'm sure works much better. And it's obviously because of the fact that the author can create narratives and trains of thought for right inner worlds that are hard to depict on screen. Yes, because of the fact that you have to translate that to dialogue, you have to translate that into visuals. And I mean, Randall Kaiser's not a filmmaker who, yes, he did Greece, which is okay he did play the navigator which i actually enjoyed but you know it's it's not it's okay but the fact of the matter is it's like you you have to have a filmmaker who's capable of projecting those ideas and he just isn't honestly i'm gonna be honest with you i don't know how i don't i'm not familiar with the source material I don't know how you could tell this story in a way that means anything whatsoever. Yeah. I think it's, I think, I think this is a story from a bygone era. Um, yeah. And I, I, and again, I don't know, I don't know if this is like a direct adaptation or a loose adaptation. I'm not sure, but I think that the entire sensibility of it, I mean, nobody sat there and thought to themselves, why do they have to be cousins? Yeah. Because that in and of itself is the entire time you never shake it. No. The entire time no. you're watching this movie and you're like, oh, these two young, these two young people are falling in love. I'm like, they're cousins. Yeah. They like, like, I understand that they are the only two people they've ever known, essentially, and that they're the only two sexual they're the only sexual options for each other. This deserted island, they're going through puberty together. I get it. Right. But they're cousins yeah why is this movie made and <laughs> and ultimately the biggest problem with it is okay i beyond the valley of the dolls was made to shock and to kind of thumb its nose at the man and to make fun of overwrought melodramas like valley of the dolls got yeah. it emmanuel was made to t- titillate men and to, with a patina of high-minded European philosophy, you know, of sexual ideas. Okay, I got it. I don't agree with it. I think it's deplorable yeah. in its execution and its point of view, but I understand why it exists. I do not, for the life of me, understand why this movie exists. Well, we what talk, is its point? Well, you, you already talked about it. The, the, the only reason it exists is to sell on the prepubescent, the preteen, the teenage sexuality of Brooke Shields. 
That's the then only that, reason they exist. And then that makes that makes it the worst movie that we watched this weekend. Yeah, and not just be and and it's and it's arguably the worst from a creative standpoint as well. Yes. I mean, you know, it's 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 just atrocious. But yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's one of the things because I mean, when you when you uh, define sexploitation. I, I, I think that is abs- you you defined absolutely what it is. I mean, it is exploiting something that audiences were not at the time were not necessarily used to seeing on yes. screen. And yep. I mean, even now we still aren't. I mean, you know, it's it's always hilarious when you you see it every couple weeks on Twitter saying, "Oh, there should be fewer sex scenes in movies." It's like, uh, have you watched movies? Now they're about <laughs> as sexless as you can get. Um, I, I, part of me wonders if those are trolls. They've got to be trolls. Up. I mean, because the one per- they're either trolls or they're projecting what TV shows do. Because, yes, because there's there was the <clears> one <throat> that was really famous not that long ago, which was like, um, it felt so trolly, but it, it, it the person was like, I don't like sex in movies. Uh, sex in movies is what was the term they used? Was like traumatizing or abusive or something because I did I didn't consent to the sexual activity. Oh God, that's right. I forgot about that one. Oh my and I'm God, like, but it's, it's not happening. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's it is fiction. Just what? because something is depicted around you doesn't mean it's happening to you. On on top of which, you paid for the ticket to see that movie. Yes. So. What are you talking about? Oh but my if god! If I read a movie, yeah, that remember that? I, mean, I, I read forgot a movie about that a, one. Oh my a sex god. scene. I didn't. I didn't consent for this to be happening. It's like <laughs> this is sexual abuse. I'm going. What in the hell? And that's where part of me wonders. Part of me wonders. You know, you're a little bit older than me, so I think you're a Gen Xer. Yeah. Have boy, and I don't want to sound like this is a good note to close on, probably. But I don't want to sound like a like a the guy who's starting to go turn into a right wing crank or something but there is part of me that does wonder uh in the political spectrum an ideological spectrum at a certain point you go so far left you're right again you can go so far left that you're back into puritanical thinking yeah and it's like i don't want sex in movies there's too much sex in movies because it makes me uncomfortable that's puritanical thinking Mm -hmm. sex is a normal human function none yeah. of the movies we've discussed here today <laughs> to pick sex in a normal healthy way they're all meant they're they're all meant to exploit our desire for sex yeah and they're presented to us in a hyper in black blue lagoon sort of this hyper idealized virginal disney-fied way despite how horrendous it all is yeah which is as problematic if not more because you're presenting to us underage sex, incest, yeah. and sexual exploitation of a minor as if it's just a dream. It was what the a ninth highest dream. Grossing, it was the ninth highest Huge movie of 1980, too, yeah. as well. So, so that's dangerous. <laughs> and then you've got the sexploitation and the depictions of sex, which is ostensibly about female autonomy, but really isn't in Emmanuel. And then you've got... <laughs> Just, you know, just bonkers, gonzo, boobery, hyper mammalian women in the Russ Meyer film. That's not, that's not depicting sex in any kind of 
actual normal way. But for that matter, either is Euphoria or Girls or any of these hypersexual yeah. shows that are on TV. Yeah. It's always hypersexualized. And and the thing is, it's like in a way, I mean, it, it's weird to say, but in a weird way, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is honestly the is probably the most responsible in the way that it's portraying sex because in the, of these of, three, yes. Because yes. of how over the top it is. Yes. Yes. And I mean, everybody's I of age. You're not thinking about, oh my God, they're underage. And oh, and they like all that. look, you're they're not, all adults. They all look like yeah, adults. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yes, you're not very thinking so. about that very in much that so. respect. And, and they're it's, all, it's all consent. Everybody's yeah. consenting to the sexual experience exactly. for one reason or another. And yes. That, yes. that's the thing that is mind blowing about this film, this, this trilogy of film, this trio of films. And I mean, you know, again, we could have been talking about different movies. We could have been talking about Adrian Lyons' movies. We could have been talking about Paul Verhoeven's movies. We could have been yeah. talking about more Russ Meyer movies. We could have been talking about different filmmakers yeah, see, and how they approach sex. But Brian, to your point, though, those later movies, even the, the, Andrea, the Lyons films and the Verhoeven movies and whatever, what's so interesting is the reason why sexploitation really went away is two reasons. And then the third reason completely killed it. One, Skinamax. Yeah. So a lot of these sensibilities, like <laughs> you said, and it ended up on late night cable, late night premium. Or direct to video. Or direct to video. Yeah. There you go. That's another one. Or direct to cable television series, right? Mm -hmm. Like Red Shoe Diaries and whatever, whatever. Uh, Real Sex, uh, Taxi Cab Confessions, all that kind of stuff. It was around when we were growing up. Um, there are other parts of it got absorbed into mainstream filmmaking. Yeah. Just like the fact that 90s thrillers basically are just taking the sensibilities of early 80s slashers mm -hmm. and presenting them in a more presentable mainstream way. Basic Instinct is taking a lot of the, the bisexuality, yeah. the, the sexual fluidity. She kisses men and women. Oh, and boobs. And, you yeah. know, all this. And it just, honestly, and in the boob stuff, it just ends up in the slasher movies by the yeah. 80s. Yeah. You know, gratuitous nudity, and and here's the thing about America: America can can only absorb sex if it's paired with violence or comedy. Mm -hmm. If we can laugh at it, we're not uncomfortable with it. Yeah. So we get all the raunchy sex comedies of the '80s, thanks to Animal House of the late '70s. You get all the slasher movies, thanks to Black Christmas and Halloween. The uh, which are all riffs on Psycho, which is also sexual and whatnot, but doesn't show anything. Yeah. And violent. So as long as it's paired with grotesque violence. Yeah. <laughs> or raucous comedy. Oh, it's all a joke. Which again, to the both of those are more nefarious, if you really think about it, in, in shaping our sensibilities. And if you just presented sex as a run-of-the-mill, relatively boring thing. Yeah. But you that you can't exploit people's libidos. It was just like, well, yeah, the sex scenes are pretty. Actually, they're, you know, they're pretty uh, realistic in the fact that, well, it's like, well, it's awkward. And, you know, it's like, you know, not everybody's interested at the same time. Some people, it takes longer. Yeah. There's more yeah. foreplay for this person. <laughs> that person finishes quicker. There's, you know, when you start getting all that sort of stuff, you can't exploit that. So you have to present these hyper-sexualized, oh, yeah. bizarre, bizarro <laughs> versions of sex to the world. But I'd rather live in a world where at least we have the possibility of a female director 
taking on something like Emmanuel than live in a world where it's like, well, we can't have that because that might offend somebody who pays to watch it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which yeah. brings us full circle. If you don't like things, don't watch them. Yeah, that's, that's true. I, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I don't I'm... like these movies. <laughs> uh, I'll watch Beyond the Valley of Dolls again, but I don't like two of these movies. I will never watch them again. Yeah. And I will also make sure that I don't go on a lifelong Twitter crusade against the fact that these movies exist. Yeah. My identity is now not going to be the guy who hates Emmanuel, even though I hate Emmanuel. (laughs) (laughs) And the guy who was absolutely repulsed by Blue Lagoon. Yeah. I'm going to build my entire identity off of that. I, I, so that, that's, that's where I end on this is sex should be in movies. It should be in, it should be presented uh, probably in a way more female input than we've ever had. Yeah. It needs to be desensitized and presented more naturally and destigmatized. Um, we need better representation of female sexuality. We need better representation of the spectrum of human sexuality. And, but you can't understand why sex is the way it is in mainstream film without understanding sex and sexploitation movies. Yeah. You just can't. Same mm-hmm. reason, same way you can't, you can't understand violence unless you understand that eventually whatever was on the fringes, whatever was independent, whatever was outside the studio system, if it was successful enough, the studios co-opted. And that's what happened with sex and violence in the mm-hmm. 70s. Well, I, I, well, violence, uh, I mean, violence, I think it was a combination of things. I, I think what you're talking about is part of it. But also when you're starting to talk about where gratuitous uh, blood-soaked violence really started to come into play. And I mean, that's a conversation for a different day. Different day. But, yeah. um, you know, you, you also got to figure it's around the time of Vietnam. And Correct. the way that the news was portraying violence was drastically different at yes. that time too. So it's like, well, if, if they're allowed to see it on the news, why can't we show it in movies? And so, yeah. Well, but, an even more cynical version of that, Brian, is if you're seeing more blood and guts and more realistic gunshots on television on a weekly, day and nightly basis, like you said, then how are we going to shock and awe people into theater? Exactly. What are um, we going to exploit? So I guess what it all boils down to, my final, final thought as we bring this to the close, is that mainstream Hollywood is exploitation. Yeah. It's exploiting us as the audience. Do you want to see Michael Keaton as Batman again? Because we know he means something to you from 1989. Yes. Then we're going to exploit that to get you to buy a ticket to see it. Do you want to see the Flashpoint Paradox story told? Yes. Then we're going to exploit that. Do you want to see... Jurassic Park, the original cast come back because you have an emotional attachment to them and we're going to exploit that. Do you want to see the latest and greatest special effects? Do you want to see the latest dumb fuck spectacle for the Fast Furious movies? Yep. Well, what stupid thing are they going to do now? We're going to exploit that. It's all a geek show. All of it. It's all a carnival and it always has been. It's all Vanity Fair. Always has been. Always will be. Dear critics, get off your high horse. Get out of the Criterion (laughs) Collection. And start watching movies, the other 99% of movies. Except when it comes to Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which is in the Criterion Collection. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but you can, 
you can watch movies like we did here today that are of subject matter that neither one of us are experts in. Watch the films, not like two-thirds of them. And actually be morally against them. You know, uh, have, an, have personal value systems that are di- diametrically opposed to what Blue Lagoon and Emmanuel stand for. That's true of both of us, I would say. Yeah, yeah. And not lose your mind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's part of what being a critical thinker is in the world. You can be morally disgusted by something and not become a crusader. Yeah. You know, and you can become an advocate for things being better without becoming some sort of obsessive over how bad things were or how things are. You know, it, 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 you got to build. You can't just constantly tear down, I guess. It is, That's it. I'm, you know, I'm done, Brian. It is, is a fact <laughs> of life that if you are a film critic, if you are a film podcaster, if you are a film lover, you are going to see movies that you hate in the pursuit yes. of seeing as much as possible. You do not, like like Jason says, you do not have to make that your, the central aspect of your personality. And in fact, because you know what? You're just going to be as obnoxious as you claim somebody is who loves the thing that you hate. Yes, it's 100%, like It's, it's 100%. absolutely, you know, it's, you know, when people are, when so many people, you know, it, it's said more and more that people are losing their media literacy. And I, I think yes. a big part of that is coming from the fact that, I mean, part of that is the way that Hollywood exploits what we want to see in movies. I, I think that is a big part of it, but I also think it's a big part of the fact that people are not adventurous enough to see movies that they either have no interest in seeing or it just fits outside of their wheelbox of what they would go, what they normally would go see. And, um, you know, it's like, I don't know that I ever would have watched The Blue Lagoon. And you know what? I I think my my life would have been fine if I never had. I'm glad, but the thing is, I'm glad I did because of the fact that then I get to have this conversation with you about a subject that's interesting. And you're in full, we're better informed because we have seen it. Exactly. And we can even better be where we go into things like that, that Brooks Shields documentary, which is a heavy discourse that needs to be had, better informed. We can now better contextualize it because we've we've experienced a piece of uh, history. Exactly. We, we, yeah. And, and if, you, if you don't understand your history, um, what are you doing? You know, it's just, uh, if you're only going to read and watch and experience the things that you already know you like and already align with your sensibilities, how do you grow as a person? Yeah, no, exactly. I mean that you're, you're not a, if, if you're just watching the same type of movies that you enjoy watching, you're not a film lover, you, you just like a certain subsect of movies. And to a certain extent, that's fine. And that's fine. But yes. if you want to be a film lover, you have to dig deeper. And that's one of the things that I have tried to do over, and I know uh, Jason does over binge movies. It's one of the things I 
try to do on my podcast, and it's one of the things I try to do when I go on to other podcasts like Jason's. And I mean, I I just love having these discussions. I love div- digging deeper into cinema, and you know, my my taste may not always align with Jason's. Sometimes to his horror, but um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah. you know what? I I always feel challenged by him to dig a little deeper, and for that I say, Jason, thank you very much. Oh, thank you, thank you for having me on, so we could talk. Probably it's got to be a record for you—the longest episode ever. It's it's <laughs> it's up there. It's up there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh, I I, I just gave you shit for having a three plus hour. <laughs> episode on summer camp movies and look what we're doing um I know, I know. Yeah. but like i said i mean that conversation went well and uh i i loved every minute of that conversation Same. but um when we before we close uh and sign off jason where can people find you as long as twitter exists i will be there at binge movies we're on instagram at binge movies lives you can find us on all your favorite podcast app. We also have a Patreon where I do a bunch of weird stuff. Like I'm doing a multi, uh, who knows how long it's going to take me, but a very long series of the audio essays themselves are short, but it's a multi-part audio essay series on uh, works of Albert Pune, uh, who passed away at the end of last year. It was sort of the master of the direct-to-video movie. He didn't start off that way. He started off uh, as being... Uh, first run theater director, but by the end of the eighties was pretty much stuck in direct to video. Uh, he was one of the go-to workman directors for Canon pictures, Canon film and, uh, worked with Charles band as well, uh, at empire. And I don't know if he did full moon, but probably, um, doing stuff like that. I do instant reactions to new releases that we, that's on the main feed, but you get extended cuts of those uh, instant reactions on Patreon. We do live events. There's a whole tier system. We have, Four tiers, three left, one sold out. But if you look at that, see what the benefits are. Uh, see if you want to support uh, a very weird show for people who love movies. And uh, if you're a person who likes weird things and loves movies, you'll probably like binge movies. So go ahead and check it out. I'd be greatly appreciative. Thank you, Brian, for having me on. I'm losing my voice. <laughs> I've ranted and raved. I've, I feel bad for you for having to edit this, but... Uh, <laughs> I, pre- I appreciate you as always, man. You, you put a lot of thought into what you say, and that is a damn rare commodity these days in film spaces. It It is, it, you know, it, I mean, and the thing is, it's like, it, it doesn't even have to do with my age, but I mean, I think it has, I think as I've gotten older, it's like, I want to be able to talk as concisely about movies, and but also as thoughtfully about movies as possible, and I mean that's why that's why I seek out people like Jason and other friends of ours like Robert Yanis and Darren Lundberg and other yeah, other people because of the fact that I have I get to and Carlo, I get to have those conversations with those people and I you know, I appreciate because we I think we started off talking because of the fact that I had expressed an interest in being on binge movies and then you reached out to me about it and then i had you on as well here the first your first appearance here and then we've kind of just gone back and forth with that and it's it's been really great to get to know you jason and i likewise friend it's 
it's it's always a pleasure. I mean, especially as a fellow Ohio Ohio person. So yeah, Ohio yeah. native baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, Jason, yep. yes, thank you once again for joining me, and it it is always a pleasure. Always a pleasure, friend. Always a pleasure. I'd like to thank Jason for joining me on the podcast today. Uh, his is always such a pleasure to talk to him. I I get something new out of talking to him every time I do, whether it's just via Twitter or whether it's via podcast. And um, I I I'm really grateful to have friends like like. Uh, like Jason, who've been able to find a place for me on their podcast, as well as uh, join me on my podcast to talk about subjects that interest me. And uh, this this was a great discussion. I think it's a necessary discussion, and I hope you got something out of it. Um, that's going to be it for this episode of the Sonic Cinema Podcast. July is going to be a fun month. We're going to be talking about a trilogy of filmmakers films from one of the great filmmakers of our time, as well as one of the great composers of our time in a massive round table. That is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, thank you very much to all my patrons at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. Thank you very much to everybody who listens to the podcast, however you listen to the podcast. And finally, thank you very much to everybody who reads my work at www.sonic-cinema.com. Thank you.